Greetings, all you commanders, eagles, and angels. This is Rainbird, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Hard News on Friday nights on BBS Radio Station One. So we're grateful that you join us here tonight. Here, I'd like to just take a few moments. Oh, I hear that calling drum. I want to take a few moments to go into our heart space. So take a few gentle breaths. Breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth. Go into that heart space. Let go of that dross of the day. Gather around with your guides, your guardians, your spirit teams, your totems. Whoever you'd like to join with, your ancestors maybe, with this teeny drum, you hear that calling beat. And there's a council fire, it's in the center. So let us all gather around that council fire in that virtual way that we know how to do. As we call in the seven galactic directions in the Mayan tradition.
welcome from the east, the house of light. May wisdom open in the dawn that is upon us so that we may see things clearly. We welcome from the north, the house of night. May wisdom mature among us so that we may see everything from within. We welcome from the west, the house of transformation. May wisdom be transformed into right action that we might accomplish what must be done. We welcome from the South, House of the Eternal Sun. The right action give us the harvest so we might enjoy the fruits of planetary bees. Welcome from above, the house of paradise, where the star people and the ancestors gather. May their blessings reach us now. We welcome from below, the house of earth. May the beating of the crystal planet's heart bless us with its harmonies so that we might end war. And we welcome from the center, source of the galaxy, which is everywhere at once. May everything be recognized as the light of mutual love. Ayam Hunaku even Maya Imaho. Ayam Hunaku even Maya Imaho. Ayam Hunaku even Maya Imaho. All hail the harmony of mind and nature. All my relations in Lakesh. I am another you. You are another me. <laughs> so let's take a moment. Just stay where that heart, that drum beat took you. As we take a few moments to do an update on the Mayan record of days for today and for the week ahead. And so what's interesting about we just entered the month of March in our calendar, but we're synchronized with the days of the of of the of with the tones of the Mayan calendar, the 
that guide each day. So um, we're looking at this. The three, also we're looking at today being the 3rd of March and it's the 3rd month. So we have the devil three today. And it's also a three Maluk in the Mayan record of days. So we've got a triple three going. <laughs> and it's very electric. So it's three Maluk, the moon, the red electric moon. It's got the, <clears throat> it's in the wave of the blue hand which is about healing ourselves and healing others through all reality. So it's a it's a healing it's a healing wave spell that we're walking through right now. And we're on that third day of it. So we're looking at the electric tone with this electric moon. Electric three uh, descriptive words are bonding, service service and activate. And uh, look, the moon is purify, flow, and universal water are its three descriptive words. So here's the affirmation or mantra for today. I activate in order to purify bonding flow. I seal the process of universal water with the electric tone of service. I am guided by the power of space. And that would be the Skywalker. Ben is our guide tone for the day. And our support today is is Ox, the dog. And our challenge, Cliff, for the day is the storm. And you betcha. <laughs> They're pretty much all over the country. we got that going on. And our spiritual guide for this evening as we go through the fourth uh, walk of the of the day it's the human and that's the spirit guide for the whole day as well the human so it's all up to us chickens people I mean humans <laughs> so that's what's happening today let's look at the this look a little bit more the moon energy and this we know that tone is the electric tone and that's activating so that active three. So the Maluk is an artist aspect. And um, it's about that wise use of our rational mind and accepting spirit's direction. So listen to the what you're <laughs> hearing from that moon energy and respond to that. Embrace these, that, this gift with that contact with spirit and remembering what we came here to do. And remember that universal mind is our mind. So we activate our telepathy and and trust it. So let go of any insensitivity or any attachment to omens or any self-doubt as we embrace these energies today. And then going on to tomorrow, Saturday, it is a four-ock, the white self-existing dog. That self-existing tone is just that. It's where we get that structure from the four. And um, so it's also self-generating that way. <clears throat> and it's an, the ox, the dog, is an artist aspect as well. So we're working with unconditional love that the dog teaches us so well. And healing the pain of the past. 
So we embrace these gifts of having that contact with our spirit guides, that awareness of our destiny and that awareness of our past lives, and that gift of our loyalty to humankind. Thank you, dog, for showing us that loyalty. So let go of any fears or any unwise use of anger as we embrace these energies on Saturday. And then Sunday, it's a five chewing the blue overtone monkey. And it's another artist aspect. So good creative time that we're in these three days. So we're working with this chewing, we're working with that balance of work and play and paying attention to clarity of mind and that wise use of magical artistry. So we embrace the gifts of innocence and spontaneity, that ability to play and humor, that ability to laugh. So keep it up. Keep those energies up. Let go of any insensitivity or any jadedness or any resistance to compassion as we embrace these energies on Sunday. And then moving on to Monday, the sixth ad, that's the rhythmic human, the yellow rhythmic human, and the human ad is a healer. So our work as humans is enlightenment of humankind. So let's activate that cosmic consciousness and attune to spirit as we embrace these gifts of being that human servant warrior and the gift of abundance and that's that's our birthright (laughs) and that gift of our contact with other dimensions as well as we let go of any dependence on the analytical mind we embrace these energies with that rhythmic tone and that's just putting that two two of those threes together (laughs) and making that electric happening in a rhythmic way, in a consistent way. So hold on to the rhythm of that energy and keep on moving. And then on Tuesday, it's it's uh, Seven Ben of Skywalker. It's the Red Resonance Skywalker. So And it's also a full moon. So let's look at this little Skywalker, Seven, a little bit better. That resonant tone of seven, that's that magical point between. It's like the top of the mountain. It's the from from earth to heaven and heaven to earth. <laughs> so that's it's a good tone taking us to source. And it's a warrior aspect for the Ben Ben the Skywalker is a warrior aspect. So we're working with our focus and striving towards illumination and clarity. So we embrace the gift of strength, that warrior strength, and that ability to bend dimensions the Skywalker has. So let's let go of any resistance to faith or any belief in um, aloneness as we embrace these energies of the Skywalker. On Tuesday, with that full moon in Virgo, it happens at 7.40 a.m. in the morning. And uh, it should be very powerful full moon. Looking forward to hear more with the astrologers and lightness about that as well. 
<clears throat> but being on that Skywalker day, we know it's going to be have a galactic influence for sure. And with that seven tones, just very powerful as well to accompany that energy. And then moving on to Wednesday, it's an eight ish. And so, um, and it's also the eighth day of March, so it's International Women's Day. So here it is, White Galactic Wizard Day, and it's a visionary aspect. So we're working with that eight tone, that galactic tone, and it's that octave, and it's just bringing in that octave level of the of the beginning, the first tone, and expanding it. Um. So we're working with that illumination for others, and we're working with clarity of mind and purpose. So we embrace these gifts of being that shaman, the magician, and working with our jaguar medicine and being that jaguar priestess woman and working with integrity and working in accordance with divine will as we let go of any control issues or personal power issues or any manipulation with this good magical energy on Wednesday, International Women's Day. And then on Thursday, it's a nine men, the blue solar eagle, the visionary aspect as well. So we're working with the visionary aspects, very nice. And we're working with our commitment to service with that eagle energy, seeing that big picture and seeing all those details. Um, we're working with that conscious, moving consciousness to source and and reconnecting with all creation with this energy, that using that eagle energy to connect us to the higher. So embrace these gifts of independence and that belief in self. As we let go of any feelings of despair or dissociation or that illusion of separateness, we embrace these energies on Thursday. And then Friday, when we come back, we'll be at that yellow planetary warrior or the Ten Keeb is the 10th of March. So isn't it fun how all the days, every time you know what day it is, you also know what tone it is, at least for these first 13 days of March, right? So pay attention to that and get to learn those tones and those energies of the tone. The planetary tone for Friday is, um, is, is about manifestation, and Keeb is a warrior aspect. So we're manifesting this warrior energy with Keeb, and and uh, we're working with trusting in our journey and being having awareness of right action. So we embrace these gifts of that communication with the divine, that access to cosmic consciousness, as we let go of any limitation or restriction or any hesitation. We embrace these energies on Friday, and we'll talk about it some more next Friday when we get there. But it's a Powerful week ahead. No um, portal days, <clears throat> but um, or or galactic activation days, as they're also called. But uh, it's working with that in this wave of the blue hand, where we're really paying attention to healing ourselves and others and everything through all reality. So let's let's keep that in mind and. Uh, Enjoy the week.
And now I want to take a few minutes, change my hat, and talk about the housekeeping. As we are a listener-supported radio program, it's each of us that make it happen. Each week we have uh, fees with BBS Radio for three shows, and Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, and we need $300 to cover those expenses. So that's what we need this week, and if anybody wants to be generous, we, we owe just about all of last month. <laughs> but we're not going to get behind again. We're going to keep up, and we're going to throw in a little extra each time and start picking on that debt that they're, they're gracious enough to tolerate that we're behind and that we will catch up. And so it's all of us that come together and make it happen and note, note that uh, sending money is one of the nicest ways to be express our gratitude for all that uh, BBS Radio brings to us and all that Tara and Rama bring to us as well and the panel on Thursday. So... Let's take a few minutes to see how we make a donation to the radio. You want to go into your heart space and see what is yours to give. Then go to bbsradio.com, and you're wanting to look at the menus there for Radio Station 1. You'll see on Thursdays at the and Fridays at the 6 o'clock hour. On Thursday, it's a, a night at the round table with the panel. And... On Fridays, it's the uh, hard news on Friday nights with Tara and Rama. At the 6 o'clock hour, you'll see that listing, and that's the Pacific time. So as you click on the icon that's there, uh, that'll take you directly to our account with BBS Radio, and there you can make a donation any amount. And thank you for your generosity. So, and thank you for taking that action. We're so grateful. We're grateful that you join us, and we're grateful for all the ways that you show up in your lives. And we're grateful that you join us here. So, let's give back and um, keep it going. This is a good way to gather each week. And we've been doing it for 13 years, so we know we can keep it up <laughs> and keep doing it. So, lots of gratitude for all of you. Um, and we're also assisting Tara and Raleigh with their needs, and this is how we we help them. You can um, well. Here's what they need first: they have bills of uh, five hundred and thirty dollars, and the hundred and thirty dollar bill is due on Wednesday, and there's an, another two hundred and something dollar bill that's due on um, let's see. Monday following, so it's that has to be paid. So we've got to make sure that that's in there, even even though it's not quite in this week. It's in the beginning of next week. It's real important that that happens, and the other bill is then due on a couple days later. So it's five hundred and thirty altogether for those bills, and they still owe four hundred dollars on the car, and they require. $200 for their living expenses for gas and food and various sundry items that come up that are needed to purchase. So as you can assist in this, we're so grateful. Uh, Here's how we do it. You want to access Rowan's PayPal account, and you do that in two ways. One way is through our website. There's a link for it on the menu page, on, on the homepage on the menu. So... 
Here's that web address. It's rainbowroundtable.net. And as you click on that menu grid on the home page, the menu will drop down. And near the bottom of that list, it's a long list. You might check it out sometime. <laughs> near that bottom is the donate button. And you click on that, and that directs you to Rama's PayPal account or the Rainbow Roundtable PayPal account. So that's one way. And then you use your bank card there. Or you can go to paypal.com and put in Rama's email there for the Rainbow Roundtable account. And when you do that, then you access the friends option. So here's that email address. It is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999, at hotmail.com. So Koran49s, hotmail.com. And... Just put that in where it says who you're gifting to, and that's how you make it happen that way. Enter your bank card. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then, what else? Oh, yeah. Um, as you're sending something, please let Rama and know what you're sending when you're sending it, and when you sent it. <laughs> so that that he can be expecting it and breathe easy. (laughs) And then, um, as you need it, the physical address, mailing address, is Rom D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Berkowitz, Post Office Box 280-280. And that is in Santa Cruz. New Mexico, where the zip code is 87567. And I'll say it again, Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. So there you have it, all the information you need. All you need to do is reach in your pocket, reach it deep, be generous, pay it forward, and reach all the multitudes of energy in return for paying it forward. So may many gifts come your way. Thank you, thank you, thank you for uh, sharing your abundance and calling it in that way with what we do here and with Tara and Rama and with the radio. 13 thank yous, honey in the heart. Long life, no evil, and I'm passing this talking stick. And it's got all kinds of things going on. There's stormy weather. I know that. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and spring is happening. And flowers are blooming. So lots of fairies and flowers and feathers. And that's got Quetzalcoatl is there. It's Excalibur. That's sort of truth. And... Who else? Just very many, all lots, lots, and lots of uh, energies coming in from the, the universe that are the whole rainbow of them, and the violet fire, the blue sapphire, and the platinum, and the golden rays. All those wonderful rays, healing rays, and activating rays, and purification rays, and transmutation, and it's got. Dragons and unicorns and menahunis and hobbits and all the little people. And everybody's ready to go. So greetings, Tara and Rama. Here comes this talking stick. Here it comes.
Greetings. Greetings. Oh, everyone. Um, how can I say this? Um, Rama was just telling me, he just tells me this every day at least once or more. I'm overwhelmed <laughs> and underpaid. <laughs> um, and it, it, it does have to do with this is the most important time. Um, what's that guy's name again over there? Uh, oh, Howard Dean. Howard Dean is back on the scene, and now, and uh, it's it's sexual abuse of a young girl. He did it for a long time, and he kind of disappeared from the scene, and now he's back again. He ran for president. It's just like, okay, um, uh, and. The the news factor, um, it's shifting and it's, it's, uh, uh, it's an accumulation over time in the transition of, oh, this, that, and the other is going on and that's not kosher. And now they're approaching something to do about it. Is your head okay? You want to say, oh, I'll read this. Huh? I should read this right now. Sure. Do you want to say what you... Go ahead. <laughs> okay. Well, this is from today, everybody. Uh, I. This is Rama. He says, I went and created a Jedi Council at 11.45 a.m. late this morning. And what that means is um, he sets his... Cru- he's, Rama's got uh, uh, some awesome crystals there. Yes. Uh, either from Brazil or uh, in Arkansas. And they're just amazing crystals. But anyway, he sets up a circle of crystals. And uh, he calls in higher energies. Yes. And you might say holographic forms of the beings that he's called the Faction Three White Knights uh, show up. And he's got about 44 of those people that he can call to in the physical. But they are hooked up with the, with the Ashtar Command. And the quantum field. And the quantum field. And they also uh, navigate starships. And... Um, uh, not too many of the deep states uh, are talking about that. <laughs> no. But uh, we got a couple of hours, two hours and 21 minutes of Dr. Greer last Saturday. And uh, this show and the, and the record of the history of what we have heard from Dr. Greer, everything he said in that two, hundred, two hour and 21 minutes he said with longer dissertations in the moment when it was happening, and so he synergized it all. And uh, I, I remember in particular that uh, three of the people around him were taken out in various ways by the deep state, including his wife and his best researcher friend 
and another person. I forgot what that person's name was. There was a scientist, a Sikh man, who was um, murdered because of what he, you know, Dr. Greer was exposing. And him. And him. And so that, that, that's um, a lot of that going on over many issues. Uh, and systemically, the corruption is, you know, it's over the top, you might say. Yes. And since 1949, uh, the uh, process of uh, creating a new system has been going on. So that's 70... Uh, 73 years, right? 74 yeah. years. 74 years of building a process to make the shift. And um, we're seeing the shift. We are now. seeing the shift, uh, the accumulation of the criminal enterprises. And we saw something that was. I mean, I think that's the quickest decision about uh, this man who created a hundred financial crimes that accrued for himself many, many millions of dollars. And then uh, this case come up of his mur murdering his wife and his son, and he was saying that was, uh, well, the, the news report was saying that uh, he knew that these uh, crimes that he had committed in the financial world were coming up. So he just lied through his teeth about And everything. I made a boo-boo yesterday putting my thumb in my mouth saying that this man was related to Rupert Murdoch. I retract that statement. No, it's a <laughs> completely different spelling of the name. Too. Yeah. So it's a completely different lineage. Yeah. And could I say something here? The um, the judge, I mean, that was his court. He was an attorney, and his there was a picture of his grandfather in the back of the the courthouse, and they removed that picture from the from the from the courtroom for the dur entire duration of the whole deal, so it wouldn't be an influence, I guess. But it was Are very interesting. Are you trying to say that? The man name I think his first name was Alex and his last name was Murdoch. And the one that was being tried and found guilty, that was a picture in the courtroom of his 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 relative? Yeah, his grandfather. They were they were um a substantial people in town. So he was in the elite southern uh -huh. high class white person. And yeah. he had put many people as as an attorney in that place on death row, and they were I'm sure they were mostly black, so it was real interesting that they gave him life instead of a death sentence and uh, which well that's, I think that's progress he got uh, he got two life sentences one for each of the killings of one for his wife and one for his son so he got I guess it wasn't consecutive because it make no sense no it was consecutive I listened to it this evening and they said they were consecutive 
That means he'd have to live two lifetimes to survive it, right? <laughs> no, consecutive means that they're both happening at the same lifetime. Oh, I see. I thought it meant one after the other. Okay. No, no, no. That was that's not looking at that right. It's consecutive means happening at the same time. Oh, okay. What's it's just the, one life. And I I would think he'd be suicidal myself. I would think that that would be... I don't know, because I don't think he'd survive <laughs> with the prison population very well. Well, the thing is, uh, I mean... He kept a straight face pretty much during the trial, but at the end when he got that uh, lowdown, I mean, I could see the tears just falling out of his eyes. You know, like, I mean, he was uncontrollable sobs. Well, and it, I think it was an appealing, the, the first, because he committed the crime in 21, in July of 22, he was convicted of the, he was convicted of murder. Yeah. And so this was, was an appeal, apparently. Uh, how else would that happen if you try somebody twice, right? There had to be an appeal. So he got tried again. And he admitted that he was a liar in this last process. But everybody knew he was lying all along, even though there wasn't any physical evidence. That's pretty unusual. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is unusual, but... It was it was the uh, video on the the son that he killed. He had his video camera on and it caught that that scene. So that's what they were able to uncover was his phone of the the victim. Okay, um, it's it's setting a precedent, and there's going to be more things coming up of these of this nature now, and so. We're just going to send more love to the ones that require it at the moment. And um, I think we'll read Rama's update from Faction 3. Thank you, Rainbirds. Everything you said, wanted to say? Did you say everything you wanted to say? Okay. I, I'm assuming yes. Okay. I went and created a Jedi Council at 11.45 a.m. late this, this morning. And where did you do that, Rama? Up the mountain? Up the mountain, like halfway up. So that means it's about 9,000 feet Yeah. up there in the in the forest, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it was chilly. It was cold. <laughs> uh, say, so. Um, There's still snow on the ground. Oh, yes. <laughs> Tom the Ringtailed Cat, Sweet Angelique the Cat. Along with Larry Curley and Mo showed up in the in the uh, Jedi Circle. They all said to me, "Lord Rama, the sun is getting ready to send out an M or an X class flare, solar flare that could initiate the solar flash." And just in the last twelve hours, we had a. X 2.0 flare. Again. Again. And, oh, I'm feeling it. It's, it's. They're humdingers and you just. Yeah. You got to do conscious breathing and relax. Yeah. I. If you can. <laughs> yeah. I feel the pressure and I got to breathe through it. It's not, I don't. 
feel like I'm I have a headache, but I feel like somebody's kind of going ah. pressure on both sides. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the energies themselves. It is the magnetic fields because we're electromagnetic beings. Sorry, the cats are feeling it too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, X uh, M or X class flare that could initiate the solar flash. That's a big deal, uh, and it's an energy that's just like. Oh, I went to the '86 Expo in Vancouver, and they had a ride. Where you go all the way up to the very top, and when you bump at the top, a parachute opens, and then you start going down like a, like, holy man, it's like, down. And your feet are not on the platform. You have about, you know, six inches at least off the ground. And that's how it feels. Uh, it's like letting everything go. <laughs> you don't really have a choice. But it's a wonderful sensation. It's a wonderful sensation. So let's let's look forward to that, the flash. Okay, so we're not saying, we're just saying the time is really close. This is not a scary thing. This is a good thing. In a sense, we are meeting our Selves. What we mean by this is all of life is made up of monoatomic gold and plasma light. This is the circle of life. The dark side are racing to the bottom. Um, um, uh, with their false flag agendas. Um their own evil behavior is taking themselves out of the uh, ascension process. As we focus on peace and kindness and compassion for all life, and especially in including them, and more of all of those things, forms, for all of life's forms, we are fulfilling our bodhisattva our Bodhisattva vow. Vows. I read something about that yesterday. Uh, it's about really comprehending how it feels to be in the one beingness of all that is. I would say that's it's not like what the Catholic Church has made everybody do. It has no. nothing to do with that. No. It has to do with saying I'm going to be every inch and every minute little particle of who I am and nothing else. And have ecstatic happiness. All right. This is the main reason we are all here. We are family. It's time we get over our idiosyncrasies and love each other no matter what you look like. See you in the light of the most radiant ones. Namaste. Blaze the violet fire. And I guess we got to go. <laughs>
All right, so tell us uh, where we're going, everybody's going um, with us. The phone number for the conference call is 720-716-7301, and the PIN code is 353-863-POUND. Okay, you want to say that one more time? Oh, um, seven two zero seven one six seven three zero one, and the pin code is three five three eight six three pound. Okay, everybody. Well, we'll see you there for the next hour or so, and then we'll be right back here to BBS Radio at the top of the following hour. And this is the best radio there is, and that's the word. And so it is. And Satnam for now. See you on the conference, everybody. Join us. Join us.
Delicious Heart, thank you for joining us for our weekly vlog. The company of heaven is affirming that transfiguring our carbon-based earthly bodies into fifth-dimensional crystalline-based solar light bodies will move into full swing during 2023 and the next few years. This transfiguration will be accomplished through the cooperation and the unified efforts of our I am presence, our body elemental, our silent watcher, the mighty Elohim, the directors of the elements and the elemental kingdom. Today, the company of heaven wants to remind us of a very critical factor in this process. As mentioned in last week's vlog, the aging, disease, degeneration, and mortification of the flesh we experienced in our earthly bodies are a result of our fall from grace. These painful conditions were never part of God's original divine plan for the children of earth. In the beginning, the plan was that we would evolve through our earthly experiences using our creative faculties of thought and feeling to become masters of energy, vibration, and consciousness, thus becoming co-creators with our Father, Mother, God. The initial plan was that we would evolve in vehicles of eternal youth, vibrant health, and infinite perfection so that we could learn the lessons of co-creation without any distractions from our earthly bodies. When we began experimenting with our thoughts and feelings in ways that were not based in love, the discordant frequencies of vibration we were miscreating began to reflect in our physical, etheric, mental, and emotional bodies, as well as in the environment of Earth. This situation gradually resulted in breaking down the perfect patterns imprinted within the messenger codes in our 12 strands of DNA. The intent of these codes was to form the DNA molecules that would be the building blocks for our earthly bodies. Unfortunately, the bombardment of our negativity on these codes caused weak, distorted cellular structures to form, which eventually became the aging, disease, deformity, decay, and death within our bodies that we now tragically accept as a normal part of our life experience. Through the unified efforts of the Company of Heaven and awakening humanity during the past several years, our 12 strands of DNA, which became fragmented and dormant after the fall, were reactivated. That allowed our I am presence to recalibrate those strands of DNA, which in turn paved the way in 2019 for our I am presence to activate the 12 fifth dimensional crystalline solar strands of DNA that contain the messenger codes for the fifth dimensional crystalline solar light bodies we will abide in on the new earth. In our ascension process, the time has come for humanity to reverse the adverse effects of the fall. 
it is time for us to transfigure our earthly bodies into the perfection of our fifth dimensional crystalline solar light bodies. In order to accelerate this process, we need to reactivate the core of purity within every electron of our precious life energy. The company of heaven is now sharing with us information about the significance of the core of purity that exists within the electrons that form our earthly bodies and every other facet of life on earth. This sacred knowledge is a key factor in the divine mission. We are all being called to co-create in 2023. Purity is at the heart of all creation. And it is an extremely important quality that we must learn to utilize in our physical transfiguration process. As we understand more about the divine quality of purity, we realize how important it is for us to use this gift continually in our daily life experiences. For instance, purity is a living, breathing pulsation within the very core of every electron of energy evolving on Earth. Every facet of life is comprised of intelligent electrons rotating around the central core of the atom. The atom is a miniature universe in itself and is the building block of all manifestation, including our physical, etheric, mental, and emotional bodies. The frequency of purity at the core of every electron vibrates so rapidly that no discord can enter into it or contaminate its radiance. If we could stop one electron of energy as it passes through the universe, we would see that within the electron is contained the complete nature of God, all of God's power, all of God's majesty, all of God's divinity. Every single electron contains within the central core of purity, the totality of God's perfection. Each electron is an intelligent life force as it is projected forth from the heart of God. It joyously and eagerly awaits the opportunity to serve life and to expand God's infinite light in the world of form. Each second Trillions and trillions of tiny electrons flow from the source of all that is through our I am presence and into the immortal victorious threefold flame in our heart. We then send the electrons into the world qualified with our thoughts, feelings, words and actions. The core of purity in the electrons themselves cannot be contaminated with our destructive behavior. The misqualification occurs 
when we cloak the electrons in vibrations that are not based in love. Every form of pain and suffering is the result of humanity in some time frame or dimension, either known or unknown, placing a cloak of shadow around the electrons when we send them forth through our negative thoughts, feelings, words, and actions. When we truly understand this process, we realize that regardless of how bad our life situation seems or how bad our physical condition is, purity and God's perfection are still pulsating in the core of purity in every electron manifesting as those painful experiences. Within its core of purity, every electron is waiting even now to be released from its cloak of darkness so it can manifest the perfection of God's original divine plan. Remember, every electron is an intelligent form of life that will respond to the command of our I am presence. Everything existing in our lives is comprised of electrons, whether we're talking about a person, a place, a condition, or a thing. The electrons that make up our life experiences are reflecting our consciousness. These tiny beings of light came forth from the heart of God and answered the call to obey the magnetic pull of our I am presence and our heart flame. Once the electrons entered our heart flame, we had the free will to qualify them with any thoughts or feelings we chose. Since these tiny light beings must obey the divinity in our heart flames, we have the ability to speak directly to them and to command through the power of God, I am, that they continuously and permanently expand the flame of purity pulsating in their very core. Today, the company of heaven will guide us through an activity of light on behalf of the precious electrons. If you have the heart call, please join with me and the company of heaven now. And we begin. In the name of the almighty presence of God, I am. And through the full power of the I am presence and the threefold flame pulsating in every heart, I speak directly to the divine intelligence within every electron of precious life energy existing in my earthly bodies and the earthly bodies of all humanity the elemental kingdom, and Mother Earth. Blessed electrons, through the power of God, I am. I command that the flame of purity in the central core of your being now expand 
expand and expand continuously and permanently. Through the power of God, I am, I direct the crystalline white flame of purity to cast off any shadows cloaking the electrons within my physical, etheric, mental, and emotional bodies and the electrons within the physical, etheric, mental, and emotional bodies of humanity, the elemental kingdom, and Mother Earth. O sacred flame of purity, cast all of these shadows into the fifth dimensional violet flame of God's cosmic forgiveness. Instantly transfigure every shadow back into its original perfection. Raise every rate of vibration which is causing any form of limitation in my life or in the world into the heart-based frequencies of the new earth. As the flame of purity quickens the vibratory rate of each electron, I witness every cloak of darkness being cast into the violet flame. All shadows created by humanity's past misuse of our precious gift of life are being instantly transfigured into light. From this moment forth, through the grace of God and my I am presence, I am experiencing the blazing white light of purity continuously and permanently expanding, expanding and expanding within the core of purity in every electron of precious life energy on earth. I accept and know that through the command of my I am presence, this purification is being God victoriously accomplished through all dimensions, all time frames, and all levels of consciousness. And so it is. Dear one, allow this sacred knowledge to inspire your light work. Contemplate what a blessing the flame of purity is for the precious electrons in your earthly bodies and every other facet of life on earth. God bless you. I look forward to being with you next week. Welcome back, everybody. Greetings, dear ones. I'm Cryon of Magnetic Service. There are so many who will say, well, dear Cryon, you, you give such a, a picture of change. You give such hope. But why? We've heard about the, the cycles. We've heard about the potentials. We know about the field. 
We've even learned that consciousness is beginning to, to be measured. What else might there be that would lift us so much out of an older human consciousness where all we did was war? What is it? I've given you the information on the activation of the nodes and the knolls of the push and the pull of how the grids of the planet, both invisible and visible, are being changed, including that which is magnetic. But there's more. Last week, I reminded you of some interesting things to think about. And I told you that inventions were given to this planet seemingly all at once. And if you review some of the most profound inventions of your time right now, you will see that it didn't necessarily come from one place or one group. The world seems to discover things when it's time. And that's what I want to talk about. I've said something to you many times, and I'm going to say it again because it is the key to what's going to happen next that's different. What is it that could happen universally on this planet that would make a dramatic change? Discovery is the answer. Discovery of things you have no idea exist here, not somewhere else, but here. You don't know what you don't know. You really don't. In order to give this to you yet again, I use the example I gave last week. If 25 years ago, I had told you that there would be no more film, what would you think? Photographers would gasp and they would say, what do you mean no more film? That's our living. What are we gonna do without film? And so the best minds would put that together and say, if that's a real prophecy, what medium would replace it? Do you understand that no medium has replaced it? A new paradigm has replaced it. A paradigm you couldn't think about. And so back then, you could even see the way you would think now. When I tell you things right now that I said last week, and I said, get ready for the end of batteries. All of them. There are so many who would say, well, what's going to replace them? And the answer is nothing. Because they're not going to be needed. Because of what is coming, you don't know. You can't imagine what you don't know. And so the plea is this. Again, I'll say is this. Don't judge what's going to happen to your future based upon the events of the past. 
Because there are things coming that will shape the way you think. That will expand humanity in ways you didn't expect. Things that may actually heal entire continents of disease. What would happen if the diseases of the planet stopped? Look at how many millions are controlled by others simply because they're sick. What would happen to societies and cultures if suddenly they were cured? We brought up an axiom, and I'll say it again, that is laughable to science. And here it is. When a human being starts to vibrate differently at a cellular level, disease cannot enter your body. And the reason, because disease has its vibration. It's alive. Some even have a consciousness of sorts. Imagine vibrating at a higher level of consciousness so that a lower level of disease will never enter your body again. That is thinking out of the box. If I said there'll come a day when there'll be no this or no that, which is prevalent today, and you'd say, what is the cure? And I told you there won't be one. <laughs> it's going to be you moving past a point that you didn't even know existed a point of consciousness that will start to develop there are inventions coming that i cannot describe because you wouldn't understand let's say you go back in time and and you want to tell Amaya all about the internet. <laughs> That's going to be a tough one. You see, there's two or three or four inventions that you're going to have to discuss before the internet. One of them is electricity. <laughs> you get past that one, you start to talk about transmission through the air. You get past that one, you have to start talking about computational digital power you get past that one you have to then talk about communication between those machines and eventually you'll get to the internet do you see what i'm saying two or three things must happen before a big one will happen if it is true that you are given inventions because of that which you create with free choice of light and dark, light is starting to win. Darkness is starting to be uncovered. That alone should tell you that human nature itself is changing. When you see things that have existed in corruption or inappropriateness for hundreds of years, and suddenly, they change. You must ask yourself, what is it that I'm seeing now that wasn't there for hundreds of years? Logically, it's there. Things are starting to be revealed. 
that never were before or things that always were there and covered up. Now you're saying, no, that cannot continue to be covered up because it's inappropriate. It's outside of love and compassion. It's not right. That is an example of light starting to win. That is an example of a raised consciousness. But that is going to happen all by itself, dear ones, because of the cycles you're in. I'm talking about something else I've talked about before, an invention. Won't be an invention as much as a discovery. The two together will give you something you don't expect. It will rewrite everything you felt you knew about yourselves, about the planet. One invention is coming. It must be preceded by two others, but it's coming. In Second Kings, there's a story that I've told so many times. People say, why do you keep telling the story? Now you'll understand. Elijah was about to ascend. And he would be the only human who chose his ascension time and asked it to be recorded and documented by Elisha, his understudy. And he told Elisha, I'm going to go into the field and I want you to write as fast as you can. Don't be distracted by what you see, but record it well and be accurate. And as the story is told and accurately, by the way, dear ones, Elijah, a man of intense wisdom and connection to God and spirit, walked into the field, raised his hands, and turned into a ball of light. Turned into a ball of light. And Elisha wrote it down and watched it, tears running down his cheeks. Nothing came and got him. No light descended from the heavens. Elijah turned into his own ball of light, eight meters wide. So bright you couldn't look at it, brighter than a welder's torch this was. That's where it got a name. Elisha had seen something that no other human being had ever seen. The vehicle that the soul rides in, a multidimensional bubble filled with patterns that mean things and languages all right there in front of him. And it replaced his master. The corporeal Elijah had vanished. And this ball of light then seemed to be carried by three white horses into the heaven, a metaphor, dear ones, 
of the power of that three. We've talked about it so often before. How many spiritual systems have a, a, a three involved in their divinity? Start to count them. It means something. It's a catalyst for humanity. That was, that was a long time ago. Now, why do I tell you that yet again? What if I told you something is coming that will allow you to see the same thing, to see the same thing in the same way? What is it Alicia saw and wrote about it? What was the mechanics of this? And I'll tell you, it was the ability for a moment to see multi-dimensional life and things that are outside of 3D. You cannot, but there is an invention coming that will. We've given you hints about how this might work and how you might see it through instruments. Crude at first, using super cooling, we've told you. That ought to give a hint of what it's measuring. What you're going to see will change humanity forever. You will see the Merkabah around every single human being. You will see patterns of health. You'll be able to look at a human and start to figure out what's going on inside their consciousness, their body. It's a map. It's a map of the consciousness of who you are right in front of your eyes. You think that might change something. <laughs> It'll change everything. The first question you'll ask is, what is it? Why is it there? What is it saying? It will rewrite spirituality on the planet. Rewrite it. You got to start again because it's going to show magnificence. You're not going to see one human who's dark and one human who's light. You're not going to see that which you think is there. Instead, you're going to see an equality that is beautiful, human to human to human to human. Oh, but wait, what's that around the trees? <laughs> but wait, what's that around the rocks? There's a geologist in the room. I'd be able to be careful. There's life everywhere that you didn't expect. How can I tell you what you don't know and you can't imagine? It's going to rewrite biology. It's going to rewrite the definition of what life has to be because it moves. There are definitions and words coming that there will be buzzwords in the future that you don't have today. It's going to show coherence. It may even show the field. It is the beginning of a planet's ascension track. You don't get that until you're ready to move to the next level. A society that would never kill itself or even think about that, an unconscionable act would be to take another's life. That's coming as common sense, dear ones, 
as common sense. That war is not an answer to anything. It's a horror. It's never solved any problem on the planet. That's going away. The gyrations of learning will be difficult. Because you cannot come from thousands of years of dirt into the light without studying what it means and how to do it. There's going to be a slow integration of light into the dark. I told you that before. The world does not have to end for it to start again. The cycle doesn't mean the planet is going to die and then be reborn. It does not have to follow suit to other civilizations, some of whom died with pandemic of their own making. Not you. You're still here. And that ought to tell you what's next. What's next is an integration, difficult as it may seem, of light and dark that's never happened before. Old soul, every single one of you came with this potential. Old soul, I've said it is your lineage. It's your lineage. It's why you're here. And the, it's just the beginning. It is just the beginning. It is just the beginning. For you will return and return, and every time you come, consciousness will be raised a little more and a little more. And it's going to be a, a comfortable thing for you to walk into this planet as a newborn and pick up where you ended before. Evolution will not be a better corporeal body, it will be consciousness. Evolution, totally consciousness I've said this before for those who say you're not coming back because you're tired or you're done yes you are how would it feel to come back with an intuitive mind so you'd never make the same mistakes you made before would that change things and the answer is of course of course what if high consciousness was this way that it knows in the field what works and what doesn't work with relationships, with business, with partners. That you wouldn't make the same mistakes because you don't have to plow through darkness anymore. You'd know it because there's light there now in your path. That is conscious evolution. And that has never occurred. You don't know what you don't know. You cannot say what happened in the past then is the map for the future. It isn't. You'll see it isn't. Brian, why are the things happening on the planet right now that are so difficult? All that we look at, it just seems to be breaking. <laughs> Can you raise your hand and say, Can I celebrate the breakage? <laughs> Because this is the exposure of things that have always been there that you don't want. And you're seeing it now right in your face. Some have come as wild cards to stir things up. 
so you can integrate the light in the things that you don't like. And that is the task at hand. The integration of old and new, the clashes that will occur even in science who believes that they know what they know so don't confuse them with anything new it's there to solve and it will be solved i close what alicia saw in the field was the most magnificent thing a human has ever seen the Merkaba, a piece of the soul, a multidimensional, compassionate light. And so it is. And so it is. And we are all servants of light and love and peace and joy and freedom, and justice, and beauty, and truth. <clears throat> and we are all here with goddess, all that is. <clears throat> and uh, the opening of the heart to love is the only thing on the board if you want to play a board game and greetings mother in the light of the most radiant one in the office of the Christ and only in the office of the Christ we invoke of Saint Germain and the Violet Flame. You're being announced, Mother, <clears throat> by one of your push-ups. And greetings, so much love. Greetings. I pass the talking stick. Greetings, children of Ra. Indeed, the energies are high. It is this sacred hour we can say all of it is being lifted higher. 
right in this moment. The sun is doing its cosmic dance. Ascension is assured. How we do this Hmm. It is all unfolding most magnificently. Plasma. Positive news <laughs> is what is unfolding. Mm. As things progress towards that which is called the solar flash. The frequencies continue to climb each moment here as we are fully moving into Aquarius. This age, hmm. Magnetics Water Dr. Emoto Remember the snowflakes in the water It's what's in here As we work with these energies pouring in, the plasma dust that's coming in, changing our blood, changing all the fluids in us as we imagine see the snowflakes throughout this temple it is a way to make the ascension easier The snowflakes will talk to us. 
they always do. It's just a matter of getting still, listening. Yes, T again. It is the energies that pouring in all the beings feel it. It is the lifting up at this time of such magnificent light pouring in. Everything is stirred up in this moment as we move from that old energies <coughs> to this Aquarian age <coughs> it's Quite awesome to behold. The children know all of life is pouring forth into this moment of as we go from that which is called winter to spring things are moving very rapidly war is cancelled Right now we can say the biggest events unfolding are us taking in so much more light, reflecting it back to each other, to the planet. As we want to ascend, it begins here. Now, anywhere else, for every particle that's pouring in. It knows its mission. This is the greatest time ever to be here, to be in these temples of the living light, living love, 
This is the greatest gift we could speak about right now. As we can see ourselves like a green tourmaline mm. color deep green nurturing healing it raises us up the light that's pouring in from the solar flares aurora borealis so much green healing light the gamma rays coming from great central sun this is the medicine that is being showered forth across this realm all the other nine realms surrounding Earth. It is a glorious time to be here. Most intense, precarious as well. Life is so precious. Each day, what's unfolding is the germination of the seeds that all life forms are equal with each other in the magnificence of all that is. As we recall, hmm, the kind lady, master, that spoke yesterday the I am I am that I am as we work with that energy everything else unfolds most magnificently very simple I am and so it is as Kryon been talking about for quite a while as 
we take in this light. We begin to glow as well like the sun as within, so without it's that symbiotic relationship with this cosmic dance of Shiva Shakti. Mm. Even in the midst of the issues of the day, we are all here and hmm, like the gifted commander Aurora Ray says we are family it's all unfolding in a very good way as we take in this light. Allow it to change these temples. It is quite simple when you stay in the oneness. That's the key to not lose center right now because there are so many magnificent things unfolding. Hmm. It can be easy to get distracted with the ascension symptoms and we are all being lifted higher. It's very good to see this. We are on track to merge with the incoming light. All the events that are currently unfolding are about how this old paradigm changes, free energy. We have the ability right now to travel across universes. All it takes 
is thought, form, energy. Just remember who we are in this current moment. Mm. It's quite a challenge mm -hmm. for each moment. And we know the time is short. Hmm. Life is so precious. We are immortal beings in our magnificence. And yet, things move so quickly right now. Can get lost in the shuffle of trying to stay in balance. Focus on this light coming in. It is our salvation as we keep being told. Mm -hmm. We must be on our way. Big meeting in Sambhala the Greater. Mother, the Sarah now. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And Namaste in the office of the Christ. Om Tat Sat. Namaste. Adonai Hmm. Momentito, everybody. Momentito. You've been snoring a while, Commander. Hello. 
Hello. <laughs> Where did you go? To sit with some peach trees. <laughs> to sit with some peach trees. Where? On one of the um one of the garden ships in orbit. One of the garden ships? Yes. It's a, you mean starships? It's a giant ship that I could say I don't even know how to describe how big. Yet there are groves and groves of peach trees and other kinds of fruit and forests and um, uh, how I could describe it is these are arboretums that are floating um, gardens that as things settle down after our family from the stars land, we can reintroduce these plants back to the planet. And I think that they've been um, just maintaining these gardens and um, when the time comes to restore the planet, and I think that's now, all this is going to come back. <laughs> I'm not sure how to describe it, but it's like to just sit and listen to the trees and feel the energy. And, uh, hmm. You're bringing back a lot of programming on free speech from 2007, 2008, 2006, 5, 4. And we haven't uh, listened for a, for a long change. time. Yeah, something's up in the zoo. That's the first time in years. Big shift. I passed the talking stick. Okay, everybody. Yes, we're going to listen to Amy. And then we're going to listen to Steve Colbert. He's got his guest is um, Steven Spielberg. Indeed. And it's an interesting walk we're doing. And he hints at our galactic friends. He does. I think he knows, Rama. Oh, they all. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Yabba dabba do. Okay. Where is this democracy now coming up here? Huh. Here we go. Okay. Thank you. 
is democracy now. We are currently trapped at 136 and Brook Avenue, 6745. New York City has agreed to a historic multi-million dollar settlement with peaceful protesters in the South Bronx, who police violently boxed in or kettled during a 2020 protest two weeks after the police murder of George Floyd. We'll speak with two of the plaintiffs and with a journalist who was filming that day. Then to Nigeria, where opposition parties are disputing the results of Saturday's presidential election in Africa's most populous country. to Lagos for an update. Then Guatemala bans Telma Cabrera, the Mayamam environmental and human rights activist from running for president. We'll speak with Cabrera and her running mate in a rare U.S. interview. La respuesta de nosotros los pueblos the response as the indigenous people is that this ratifies what we've always denounced, that Guatemala is a corrupt state that's been co-opted by criminals. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has begun a two-day visit to Washington, D.C. for confidential talks with President Biden that are believed to be focused on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. German opposition leaders have accused Scholz of secrecy after he scheduled no public appearances, no press conferences, and traveled without his usual contingent of journalists. The talks follow tensions over U.S. demands Germany ship Leopard 2 battle tanks to Ukraine, which Germany agreed to in January. The U.S. is also pressuring Germany to speed up production of ammunition. Meanwhile, the head of Russia's Wagner Group said today mercenaries have almost completely surrounded the besieged city of Bakhmut in Ukraine's eastern Donbass region. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says he pressed Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov to reestablish the new START nuclear arms reduction treaty after their brief encounter Thursday on the sidelines of the G20 summit in New Delhi. It was the first face-to-face meeting of high-level U.S. and Russian officials since Russia's invasion over a year ago. I urge Russia to reverse its irresponsible decision and return to implementing the new START treaty, which places verifiable limits on the nuclear arsenals of the United States and the Russian Federation. Mutual compliance is in the interest of both our countries. It's also what people around the world expect from us as nuclear powers. Neither the U.S. nor Russia has joined 92 other nations that have signed the U.N. Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. In Belarus, a court has sentenced pro-democracy activist Alas Bielyatsky, a 2022 Nobel Peace Laureate and 2020 Right Livelihood Laureate, to 10 years in prison. Bielyatsky and three other people from the Vyazna Human Rights Center were convicted with financing anti-government protests and smuggling money, the government said. He's been in jail since 2021. Wide-scale protests erupted against the re-election of President Alexander Lukashenko. 
In Cambodia, opposition leader Khen Sokha has been sentenced to 27 years of house arrest. The former leader of the now-banned Cambodian National Rescue Party was accused of conspiracy with a foreign power, treason, and encouraging a revolution. This comes amidst a heightened crackdown in Cambodia and opposition and the media. Israeli forces in the occupied West Bank shot and killed a 15-year-old Palestinian boy Thursday during a raid near the city of Kokilia. The Palestinian Ministry of Health reports the teenager, Mohammed Nadal Salim, was shot in the back while two other Palestinians were wounded, including one person who was struck in the chest by gunfire. Israel's army said soldiers were responding to suspects who hurled Molotov cocktails at them. Israeli soldiers and police have killed at least 65 Palestinians so far this year, a rate of more than one death per day. 13 Israelis and one police officer have been killed by Palestinians over the same period. French President Emmanuel Macron declared Thursday the era of French interference in Africa is over as he embarked on a four-nation tour of the continent. Last week, Macron pledged to reduce France's military role in Africa after recent withdrawals from Mali and Burkina Faso. France's efforts to stem attacks from Islamist insurgents in the Sahel have largely failed. But Macron said France intends to maintain a presence in its former colonies with a reduced footprint amidst Western concerns of growing ties with Russia and China. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, a former Belgian colony, protesters gathered outside the French embassy in Kinshasa this week. They condemned Macron's visit and demanded France pressure Rwandan President Paul Kagame to stop supporting M23 rebels in the DRC. France finances terrorist groups here in Africa, in several African states, in Congo. So recently, Mr. Macron came to Picados, the Congolese, but the Congolese people are not duped. Never did he point a finger at Mr. Kagame. At no point did he condemn Mr. Kagame. Here in the United States, Walgreens says it will not dispense abortion pills in some states where the procedure remains legal after receiving pressure and threats from Republican lawmakers and anti-abortion groups. The Biden administration approved the sale of the abortion pill, Mepipristone, directly from pharmacies in January, both by mail and in person. Medical abortions are now the most popular method of terminating a pregnancy, can be a lifeline for many people following the overturning of Roe v. Wade. This comes as a Texas judge is poised to deliver a ruling that could halt distribution of the abortion pills nationwide. On Thursday, a group of top human rights groups and experts asked the UN to intervene to stop the destruction of abortion rights in the U.S., saying that with the SCOTUS decision in Dobbs, quote, the U.S. is in violation of its obligations under international human rights law, unquote. Meanwhile, reproductive rights groups in Ohio submitted a petition to create a ballot initiative that would let Ohioans vote to enshrine abortion rights in the Ohio Constitution. Eli Lilly has announced it's lowering the price of insulin by 70%, capping its out-of-pocket cost at $35 and offering its generic insulin at $25. The move follows years of organizing and pressure from activists, lawmakers, and people with diabetes. In response, Senator Bernie Sanders wrote to the drug companies Sanofi and Novo Nordisk, demanding they follow suit. Sanders wrote, quote, insulin is not a new drug. It was discovered 100 years ago by Canadian scientists 
who sold the patent rights of insulin for just $1 because they wanted to save lives, not make pharmaceutical executives extremely wealthy. And yet, as a result of unacceptable corporate greed, the price of insulin has gone up by over 1,000% since 1996, causing 1.3 million people with diabetes to ration insulin last year, while your companies made billions of dollars in profits, Senator Sanders wrote. The Environmental Protection Agency has ordered Norfolk Southern to test for dioxins in East Palestine, Ohio, the site of a February 3rd train wreck that caused a massive release of chemicals. Dioxins are a class of highly toxic contaminants that could have formed in the chemical burn-off of the wreckage. They're found in Agent Orange and have been linked to some of the worst environmental disasters in U.S. history, including the poisoning of the Love Canal neighborhood of Niagara Falls, New York, in the 1970s. The EPA's order came as residents confronted a representative for Norfolk Southern at a town hall meeting in East Palestine Thursday evening. On every level. This has touched my family. This has touched my friends. This has touched my farm. This has touched my animals. This has touched my finances. This has touched my home. And it will touch me to the cellular level when I get diagnosed with cancer, ALS, or whatever is going to come down. If I stay in this contaminated, toxic town, and you all know that. On Wednesday, union leaders representing rail workers wrote to Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine, and other officials blasting Norfolk Southern for risking the health of workers at the crash site and not providing personal protective equipment as they clean up. The letter states workers, quote, continue to experience migraines and nausea days after the derailment, and they all suspect that they were willingly exposed to these chemicals at the direction of Norfolk Southern they wrote. On Capitol Hill, the House Ethics Committee has opened an investigation into Republican Congressmember George Santos, who's admitted to lying about his background during a successful 2022 campaign to represent New York's 3rd Congressional District. The committee will probe whether Congressmember Santos engaged in unlawful activity, including failure to properly disclose financial information, whether he violated conflict of interest laws and allegations of sexual misconduct. Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has so far refused to call on Santos to step down. And the Justice Department has argued former President Donald Trump does not have absolute immunity from civil lawsuits stemming from the January 6th assault on the U.S. Capitol. Top Justice Department lawyers made the assertion as part of an amicus brief filed on behalf of Capitol Police officers and House Democrats who are suing Trump for physical and psychological harm brought by the insurrection. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, New York City has agreed to a historic multi-million dollar settlement with peaceful South Bronx protesters who police violently boxed in or kettled during a 2020 protest two weeks after the police murder of George Floyd. We'll speak with two of the plaintiffs and a journalist who was filming that day. Stay with us.
with the quickness. Quickness, quickness. One sweat, two sweat, three motions. What motions? Music will finally be available online today. Bittersweet after the passing last month of member Trugoy, the Dove. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show here in New York, where the city has agreed to a multi-million dollar settlement with peaceful protesters who were violently boxed in or kettled by New York police officers during a Black Lives Matter demonstration two weeks after the police murder of George Floyd in 2020. As part of the settlement, over 300 people who were trapped by police and assaulted with batons and pepper spray, then detained or arrested at a June 4th, 2020 protest, will each receive $21,500, believed to be the largest class action settlement in a case of mass arrest. The arrest took place in the South Bronx. A Human Rights Watch investigation said the NYPD's conduct that day amounted to serious violations of international human rights law. We are currently trapped at 136th and Brook produced by Human Rights Watch that raised awareness about the kettling that took place that day. This is another clip. As the marchers headed down Willis Avenue, more than 50 police officers walked to the street. investigation of the NYPD Kettling in the South Bronx, June 4th, 2020. That was the focus of the historic settlement announced this week. In response to concerns raised at the time, the police said their crackdown was pre-planned. This is New York City Police Commissioner at the time, Dermot Shea. 
And we had a plan which was executed nearly flawlessly in the Bronx. Um, this wasn't again about protest, this was about tearing down society. Meanwhile, NYPD's Strategic Response Group has continued to target nonviolent protesters. And this week, dozens of people testified at the New York City Council about their abusive tactics. The NYPD refused to show up. For more, we're joined by three people who were at the protest in the Bronx in June 2020. Sanji Lopez was filming the protest. She's currently a video news fellow here at Democracy Now! Her footage was used in the Human Rights Watch report. Also with us, Samira Sierra and Amelie Sierra. They're sisters. They're among the five listed plaintiffs. And joining us, Joshua Moskowitz, one of the lawyers representing the plaintiffs. We welcome you all to Democracy Now! Um, let's begin with the plaintiffs, with Samira and Amelie. Samira, why don't you start off by talking about what this protest was about two weeks after George Floyd's murder, where you marched, and what happened? Good morning. The protest was during the uprising right after George Floyd's murder. And simply, we were exercising our human rights, our civil rights, and we were demonstrating um, and standing up against all of the racial injustice that happens day in and day out in this country. And Amelie, um, that's your older sister, Samira. Uh, talk about your decision. I mean, it was brave to go out. We're talking about June of 2020. This is at the height of the COVID pandemic. At the time of the killing, the police killing of George Floyd. Did you expect what happened to happen? And then explain what happened in just one block of the South Bronx when you were stopped by police. Yes, so to your point, this was in the midst of um, a global health crisis. Uh, we had been in the pandemic for a few months at this point. This was not the first of the protest that we attended that summer, it was the first that we had attended in our home in the South, in the South Bronx. And the energy that day uh, from the beginning of the protest was very tense. And so the very short protest that we partook in on June 4th reflected just that. It was very tense. It was met very violently. Uh, however, we were very peaceful in our demeanor. Uh, while also making sure to exercise our right that we are entitled to and express the anger and the frustration that we felt because of the violence that black and brown people are constantly met with in the United States of America. And so although our message was very clear and we were very intent, intentional in expressing our frustration and our anger, we were we were at any time, we were not violent. Uh, we were very peaceful. And so uh, it was met very violently, and we were not expecting at any point to be met with all the aggression that we were uh, by the NYPD and by the SRG specifically. I mean, the terrifying image, Samira, of the police blocking you in, kettling you, and telling you to move where there's no place to go. And then explain what the police did. Sure. So we were 
um, very strategically guided down 136th Street. And um, when we, as we were walking down towards Brook Avenue, um, we were blocked off by a line of um, officers on both ends of the street, so off of Lilith Avenue and on Brook Avenue. And they, there was a, a commander in a white shirt who continued to uh, direct the officers to move in at the same time. Um, we were boxed in, we were kettled, um, and we were also like squished. Our bodies were squished, like squished up against each other. Um, there were people that, I mean, you just passed that footage where, you know, it was it was terror. Uh, we were terrified for our lives. Uh, people could, couldn't ble- breathe. People were fainting. Um, I was, I've never uh, in my life felt the amount of fear that I felt that day. Sanji Lopez, uh, it's great to have you on screen as you're usually behind the scenes and filming, and that's what you were doing that day. Uh, Democracy Now! video news fellow now. But at the time, you were filming this protest. Um, explain what you saw. And I mean, when you see the police, the first arrests are of the legal and the medics, and they're very clear about what they're doing. Move ahead and arrest them, they said. Right, Amy, I was there. Um, I'm actually a South Bronx resident. I live in Mont Haven, and this was the second peaceful protest that I participated in in my neighborhood. Um, and it was absolutely peaceful. What I saw when the police came down this hill on 137th Street um, and kettled folks, um, I, I saw police coming down the hill on bikes at rapid speed. And as soon as that happened, literally like a second later, they started blocking people off with their bikes and pushing people with these bikes, attacking medics, like you said, Amy, attacking lawyers, people that were there on legal aids to help community members and protesters alike in case things like this happen, right? But we were not expecting that. Luckily, I managed to run away, but before I could run away, I was able to document and, and film, as you said, HRW and, and SISU. Um, human rights watch were able to use uh, the video that I recorded that day, but it was frightening. I had never been um, so scared in my and fearful in my own neighborhood, um, and I'll never forget that. I wasn't able to leave my home for months after that, like uh, um, other protesters, um, and felt unsafe, and it, it was just so traumatizing that day. I want to bring the lawyer into this conversation, uh, Joshua Moskowitz, the lawyer for the plaintiffs. Joshua, talk about the unit of police. I mean, we just played uh, Dermot Shea, the police chief at the time in New York, saying this was all pre-planned by the police. And in this Human Rights Watch reporting, which uses a lot of Sanji's footage, you see they deliberately... Uh, go after the legal and the medical teams first. And they're very clear. One of the police officers said it's fine. It said something. I think he had police legal on his shirt. And he said it's fine to arrest the legal observers who are considered essential workers at the time. Right. They were allowed to be out. Explain who this team of police are. Right. So the NYPD's strategic response group or SRG are a paramilitary organization within the NYPD that are used to protest, that are used to police protest events, um, nonviolent protest events like we saw in Mott Haven, 
they've come under appropriate scrutiny for their violent tactics that are primarily used to suppress uh, nonviolent free speech activity like we saw in Mahaven. This was no accident. This was a planned operation. And what's unique about the Mahaven operation is that it was planned by the highest level officials within the police department. Terrence Monaghan, the chief of department, which is the highest ranked, uh, highest uniformed ranking officer within the police department, was personally present at Monhaven. Uh, so were the executive officer, the commanding officer, and the bureau chief that oversee the SRG unit. Uh, they had a plan that day, and as the commissioner said the next day, it was executed in their view flawlessly. I mean, it's just astounding. And you see them separate out. Uh, one of the leaders of the protest with a bullhorn, um, they push her aside. In fact, she was one of the first to be arrested. That's right. I mean, if there's no question in the world that the plan that day was to instill fear in people so that they would stop protesting. Uh, this was not a violent uh, uprising. This was a peaceful protest. In fact, there were uh, people attending the protest who lived in the South Bronx who were uh, members of the mayor's cabinet. The commissioner of the community affairs uh, for Mayor de Blasio was there personally because he lived in the South Bronx, Marco Carrion. He talked about what happened that day and described the sentiment at the protest as closer to a candlelight vigil. The purpose of this operation was to instill fear in people. You know, it's very interesting that on Wednesday, the city council held a long planned, repeatedly delayed oversight hearing um, on the strategic response group that was involved with this. No one from the NYPD showed up, citing ongoing litigation. Your response to this and talk about this historic settlement in the country for what took place in the South Bronx. Well, as you said, this is a historic settlement. Uh, as far as we can tell, this is the largest per person um, class action mass arrest settlement uh, in the country. And we think that the, that is appropriate given the extreme violence uh, that we saw uh, carried out by the NYPD during that operation. And the size of the award that the city agreed to, we think reflects an acknowledgement or understanding that what happened that day was unconstitutional, it was immoral, and it should never happen again. We hope uh, that the NYPD uh, has taken this to heart and will reform the operations and, frankly, never use the SRG for policing uh, protest events in the future. Um, but the other aspect of this case that I think often gets overlooked is that this happened in the South Bronx. This happened in New York Congressional District 15, which is 97% people of color. It's also one of the poorest congressional districts in the entire country. This operation wasn't carried out in Manhattan where there were protests. It wasn't carried out in Brooklyn where there were protests that summer. There was a choice made at the highest levels of the NYPD to carry out this operation in the South Bronx. And that fact is part of what has um, uh, led to the Human Rights Watch, uh, finding this to be a human rights violation and um, we're proud of our clients in pursuing this litigation and pursuing the result that they achieved here for people who weren't able to get lawyers but who were there that day and who were injured. Amelie and Samira. Um, Amelie, you're 25. Samira's 30 now. This was three years ago. What does this settlement mean for each of you? Amelie, let's begin with you. 
this settlement is larger than myself. I believe that the settlement allows for individuals who were there that day, the hundreds of individuals that were there that day, the opportunity to come forward, the opportunity to be recognized and acknowledged um, based off of the abuse that they endured that day, and hopefully an opportunity to also heal. Uh, it was very traumatic, and trauma looks very different for every individual. And so I hope that this encourages all of the individuals that were unable to represent themselves to come forward. Um, and that is why it is extremely uh, crucial and very important to be a representative of the class action of this magnitude, not just for myself, but for the greater good and for all of the people that were unable to represent themselves. And Samira, your response, and also the fact that no police officer was charged that day, and also there wasn't an official apology, but you did um, have this financial settlement. Right. Um, the settlement to me means that the city of New York is being held accountable for organizing the highest level of the NYPD, which is the strategic response group, and holding them accountable for flawlessly executing excessive force in the South Bronx, which is my home. And Josh, very quickly. It also means to go ahead. It also, it also means to me that, um, you know, they're being held accountable for the violation of human rights of black and brown folks in this country. Um, one of many, uh, we have a long way to go, um, but it, it, it's, it, feels really good for the lack of a better word to know that there is some accountability. Joshua, very quickly, there are other lawsuits, right? This is not the only one, this class action. That's right. There are other lawsuits that are still proceeding. Uh, one, in fact, interestingly brought by the New York State Attorney General's Office against the city of New York, um, seeking injunctive relief to reform the police department's policing of protest events. And finally, Sanji Lopez, um, you were not kettled in, you escaped that, but can you talk about the effect on you um, as a journalist who is filming, uh, seeing uh, these people kettled in, uh, being beaten um, by the police? Absolutely, Amy. Me, um, beyond being a journalist, I'm a community member. I grew up in this area, so it hurt to see my community being beat like this. And as, you know, in response to the class action lawsuit, it's, it's great that people are getting um, monetary, you know, uh, being compensated monetarily, but we also need some trauma, some healing. Um, maybe therapy offered to folks like myself who ran away, who were able to get away from this. I also wanted to add really quickly, Amy, that my Haven Families, a community group with children and adults, protested in front of the 40th precinct, demanding accountability and asking the question, what happened on June 4th for months on end and had no response, no, no answer from the NYPD or accountability from the city. And meanwhile, a small jail, a, a jail was being built in my Haven across the street from my former middle school while all of this was happening. So this is just a traumatic event. And I think that we need to remember that people are still healing from this to this day. Well, Sanji Lopez, I want to thank you for joining us on screen today. Democracy Now! Video News Fellow filmed the protest in 2020. Samira and Amelie Sierra, 
named plaintiffs in this historic class action lawsuit, and Joshua Moskowitz, lawyer for the plaintiffs. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we turn now to Africa's most populous country, to Nigeria, where opposition parties are disputing the results of this weekend's presidential election, Nigeria's Independent National Electoral Commission has declared the winner to be Bola Tinubu of the ruling All Progressives Congress Party. Tinubu is the former governor of Lagos, played a key role in helping outgoing Nigerian President Mohamedou Buhari win two terms in office. He campaigned using the slogan, It's My Turn. Tinubu received uh, 36% of the vote. Turnout was under 30%. Several of Tinubu's challengers have just disputed the results alleging fraud, while election observers and voters have cited delays, closures, and violence at voting sites. On Thursday, Peter Obi, who placed third despite winning in Lagos, announced he would contest the election results in court. Let me read and I assure you that good people of Nigeria that was as pro all legal and peaceful action to reclaim our mandate. We won the election. I will prove it to Nigerians. We go now to Lagos, Nigeria, where we're joined by Adaraka Ige. She is a human rights activist lawyer who works with corporate accountability and public participation in Africa. I mean, you have this election being challenged by civic groups, by international groups, from the EU monitoring group to the um, U.S. International Republican Institute to the National Democratic Institute across the board. Describe what happened. Thank you, Amy. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to be on your platform again. Um, I've been here before. Um, in a nutshell, what happened on Saturday, um, which was, of course, um, the Nigerian general election, which was supposed to be also the election that um, helped the people to bring into office uh, the president and then the legislature at the national level. So there, there were three elections on that day for the presidency, for the Senate, and the House of Representatives, which are the legislative um, arms of government at the national level. Um, I think that it's, it's no gain saying that, um, like you said also in your introduction, a lot of um, um, disappointment, a lot of um, complaints have also riddled or have been the aftermath of that election. I had the privilege of, of observing the election and I also voted uh, as, a, as a citizen. Um, one of the first things I would say I immediately noticed was the fact that um, there was late deployment of even the INEC officers in certain polling um, units, some of the places where I observed. I had to personally even play the role of, because I had observed that for a long time, people were just waiting and then the wait became panic and it became tension and agitation. So in that sense, you would have to play the role of a mediator, someone who is comforting, but someone also who wants the process to be as credible as possible. So by the time the INEC officers arrived, I was the first person to ask them, but why this delay? In fact, I was really imagining that it was because they didn't have security, maybe. 
and then they went ahead to say, oh, no, it wasn't civil security. They just had logistical challenges. That was what they cited. So it, it was um, not uh, shocking that after the, uh, even as, as the elections were going on, there were real-time uh, videos, um, messaging, and so on, of people just complaining about very similar things. And then another thing that was really um, obvious uh, in Saturday's elections was the fact that there were so many irregularities, or at least alleged irregularities, given uh, pieces of evidence that came forward in certain places. Meanwhile, in other parts of the country, of course, people said they voted peacefully, there were no issues for them. But then, um, so I'm trying to balance it here so it doesn't look like hasty generalization. But from what we saw, there were also cases of violence, um, pockets of violence here and there, or people being brutalized, or even open intimidation threat to certain voters uh, because probably of uh, tribe and, you know, just locations, and then they were really harassed. And some people could also not vote at the end of the day. So that's the summary of the elections. And talk about the significance of the ruling party, well, so-called winning, Tinubu continuing on. Hello, Amy. Please, can you take that again? Oh, I was just asking if you can talk about the significance of Bola Tanubu saying that he won the ruling party continuing to rule from Buhari. Oh, I mean, okay, so I think this will take us back a little bit because I remember the last time I was here, um, you know, we were talking about the um, NSARS movement uh, protest that eventually became a movement. And if you remember, Amy, it was also... That movement itself, or the uh, series of protests, uh, were unceremoniously truncated by what was alleged to have been involvement of the state. Uh, and that movement also that was essentially led and um, activated by young people was what metamorphosed, in, in my opinion, and the opinion of so many people, metamorphosed into uh, a, a certain kind of people power led by young people who felt that because their voices were not validated or even heard um, back then in 2020, they were going to deploy all of that energy and that anger, raw frustration into the 2023 elections. Meaning that a lot of people also in that sense wanted the ruling power, the current um, ruling power, APC, out of power. Most of them young people. So for those young people, which class I also belong to, it was a time to speak loudly and clearly, probably not on the streets anymore at this point, but through the ballot. So um, for, for them, because of all these irregularities, which I would also say categorically that our election monitoring body or management body, INEC in this case, played a role in also um, giving validation to, um, it, it, for them, it was an unfair process for a lot of young people also, it's a process that did not allow their voices to be heard. What we saw was um, immediately after the truncation of the of the NSAS protest, um, a lot of the energy that was channeled was not just about waiting to vote in 2023, but also the fact that a lot of young people got involved in the process, even by um, putting themselves forward for political offices, engaging the system, engaging the politics, and also deciding to be candidates. So that was a great thing that was really applauded. But with this um, whole um, gamut of what has happened, it's also like a, a dash of hope. It's, a, it's a, a truncation, another form of truncation of the kind of trust 
that the young people also still repose a little bit in the system because this time around is meant to be conducted by an independent national electoral commission, not necessarily the ruling um, party. And you might find it interesting to also know that between then and now, a lot has happened, including the review or the amendment of the electoral law, which essentially is the electoral act of Nigeria, which a lot of people also applauded because we saw some innovations coming into the act, beginning with even funding what is now supposed to be at a level of financial autonomy for the um, election management body. Also, introduction of um, or legitimization of uh, technology in the electoral process itself. But all of that has, um, I think, hopes have been dashed. A lot of trust has also been crushed. So any claim that is being held by any political aspirant or even candidate right now uh, can be subjected to tests. Okay, Ige, we want to thank you so much for being with us, human rights activist and lawyer joining us from Lagos, Nigeria. On Monday, we'll continue to look at this election in Africa's most populous country. Next up, as Guatemala bans Telma Cabrera, the Myanmar environmental and human rights activist from running for president, in a rare U.S. interview, we'll speak with Telma Cabrera and her running mate. Stay with us. <laughs> Rebecca Lane. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. From the Nigerian election to the election in this hemisphere to Guatemala, we end today's show looking at this year's presidential election there, happening at a time of worsening repression in Guatemala against journalists, human rights activists, and indigenous environmental defenders in the Central American country. The Guatemalan Constitutional Court Thursday ruled against presidential candidate Thelma Cabrera and her running mate, exiled human rights ombudsman Jordan Rodas, upholding a February decision by Guatemala's Supreme Electoral Tribunal to block them from the ballot. Cabrera and Rodas are members of the less leftist political party, the Movement for the Liberation of the Peoples, which grew out of the indigenous-led farmers' rights organization, CODECA. Across Guatemala, thousands have taken to the streets in protest, demanding that Cabrera and Rodas be allowed to participate in June's election. Telma Cabrera is a Myanmar environmental and human rights defender, who also ran for president in 2019, receiving an unprecedented wave of support. She got about 10% of the vote. Rodas served as human rights prosecutor in Guatemala from 2017 until last year, when he was forced to flee for aligning himself with anti-corruption efforts. While they're being... While they're being banned from participating 
in the election. The Guatemalan Constitutional Court has confirmed the presidential candidacy of the conservative Zuri Rios. She's the daughter of the dead former U.S.-backed military dictator Efrain Rios Montt, who rose to power after a coup in 1982. Rios Montt was convicted of genocide crimes against humanity 10 years ago. Zuri Rios had been prohibited from running in 2019 due to a constitutional measure that doesn't allow figures who came to power by coup or their blood relatives to run for president. Cabrera and Rodas took their fight to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights in Washington, D.C. last month. They also traveled to New York, where Democracy Now! spoke with them. I began by asking Telma Cabrera for her response to being blocked from the election. La respuesta de nosotros los pueblos viene a ratificar. The response as indigenous people is that this ratifies what we've always denounced: that Guatemala is a corrupt state that's been co-opted by criminals. This is now reflected in violating our right to participate in this presidential election. They fear not Thelma, but the people, the people who organized and are putting forward the proposals for structural change in Guatemala. I mean, the significance of your candidacy. In 2019, you got 10% of the vote, more than any indigenous person in Guatemalan history. I think before that, um, Rigoberto Menchu got 3%. Um, ultimately, uh, the president, Jimate, got 14%. You got 10%. Talk about what you represent to the pactos de corruptos, which people should understand around the world, what's called the pact of the corrupt that is taking you off the ballot. A través del fraude electoral que se dio, Supuestamente eso es el Through the election fraud took place, supposedly we came in fourth place, but we the peoples understand that we did better, first or second place, but in the face of this electoral fraud, that's the place that they said we came in. Indigenous peoples, we are a menace to the corrupt pact because what we propose is a project for the nation. A popular plurinational assembly in the face of the whole context that we're experiencing. Context marked by assassinations, imprisonment, and the looting of our wealth in Guatemala. So what we are proposing is a constitutional assembly, and that they are fearful of us and the peoples governing ourselves. I'd like to add something. This shows that they're punishing us as a people prohibiting our rights to political participation. Persecution is not new. It's been happening since 2018. From 2018 to date, there have been 26 assassinations of human rights defenders of those of us who defend our territories and the Mother Earth. So the best way to punish us is to forbid our participation. But we're not after candidacies. We are promoting a whole project for the nation. Our struggle will continue even after the elections. And that is why we're continuing along the path that we've chosen on thus far. Can you respond uh, to both of you? You're the vice presidential candidate and Telma Cabrera is the presidential candidate being banned from the Guatemalan presidential elections this year. 
Bueno, es que le provocamos pánico al pacto corrupto. Well, we are causing panic to the pact of the corrupt ones, which is no violence between the political sector and the economic sector. They've looted the country for decades, indeed for centuries perhaps. It's in their interest to maintain the status quo, the situation as is, with three structural problems, inequality, discrimination, racism, and corruption. So the strength of the LLP, headed up by Thelma Cabrera, supplemented with what Jordan Rodas can contribute with an experience based on defending human rights, and I aspired to be the director of the University of San Carlos, but this has caused them panic. They know we're the only real option for change. Everything else is just continuing with the same thing, just change of a puppet. Might be a woman, it might be a man, but not like us. We know what the real problems are, and we are going to propose real solutions. Why did you go into exile? You joined so many advocates, judges, lawyers who have left Guatemala. Why did you leave? Bueno, Many of us who played a role in favor of the struggle against impunity and corruption have had to leave. In my case, as human rights ombudsman, the week after I assumed my office in August 2017, former President Jimmy Morales declared Ivan Velasquez persona non grata and ordered his expulsion. He was then the commissioner of CC. Today, he's defense minister of the Petro administration in Colombia. And I brought an Amparo action that stopped that arbitrary action by the president. Then he wanted to end the commission before its time. It was touching and getting into sensitive matters. Its investigations were reaching high-level political and economic figures in the Guatemalan state. And so it was an obstacle for the continuation of impunity. And that is why many judges and other judicial officers had to leave. And this was not just backsliding. This was revenge against those who had impacted the, their interests. Telma Cabrera, the leading candidate for president right now is Zuri Rios. Zuri Rios is the daughter of President, former General Rios Montt, who was found guilty of genocide against the Mayan people, your people in the northwest highlands of Guatemala. She insists there was no genocide. Can you talk about this and talk about this history? Eso también viene a ratificar la actitud it also ratifies the attitude of a failed state. It shows that the electoral tribunal is corrupted. It's been co-opted by criminals. Because this background, being the daughter of one who carried out a genocide, tells the people very much. And this shows that the system itself, through its laws, is violating the rights that we have as a people. That is an expression of racism and discrimination against us, the peoples. And that tells that gives the people a lesson that the power of the powerful resides in the different institutions of the state. It's not that they enjoy support, but rather it is power that has been structured in and operates in the institutions. So we as the people tell our brothers and sisters that that is the result of the failed and corrupted state. And the same ones are violating rights and bringing an end to the little bit of democracy that exists in Guatemala. 
For here, we see that same ones who are excluding the people who are the ones who are bringing into democracy in Guatemala. So the attitude of the Supreme Electoral Tribunal is clear. And we are following the rules of the system in terms of registering our candidacy, but they exclude us. So it's quite clear in whose hands power and who it is, who is serving these interests. Can you talk about the role of the United States then in supporting the military dictator, for example, uh, General Reyes Montt, um, the deaths of some 200,000 Guatemalans, and what that has wrought today, decades later? I'd like to ask both of you that question, beginning with Thelma. Bueno, en, en este caso, este, por ejemplo, cuando... Well, in this case, for example, when there are foreign companies that are also operating in Guatemala, for example, as Crower, I'm not sure how to pronounce it in English, but this is a company, a business for electricity distribution that ended up in the hands of a U.S. company. And this also led communities to demand nationalization of the electricity utilities in Guatemala. They also suffered sabotages and repression, where there was complicity of the government of Guatemala and transnational companies are central in the U.S. I think it's important to have historical memory. The government of the United States has played a very unfortunate role at certain times. For example, it backed the counter-revolution in 1954 that put an end to a decade of a democratic spring. Subsequently, they trained members of the military who were carried our genocide and scorched earth policies in Guatemala and other countries of Latin America. And now we see certain nuances. The United States that was also important for supporting the CC, the Commission Against Impunity and and corruption. But then the Guatemalan government was very skillful. They sought to ingratiate themselves with Trump. They changed the location of the Guatemalan embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, one of the few governments to do so, and it signed, a, it signed an agreement to be a third country, a third safe country, which is not safe for us. The United States has given a lot of political oxygen over the years to the governments of Guatemala, and today they have finally understood that corruption causes migration. They've begun to impose some sanctions, the Magnitsky list, the Engels list, but I think that they should act more quickly to sanction corrupt actors linked to the central government and the economic powers. Otherwise, the same problems are going to continue. For corruption is also a cause of migration. Thelma Cabrera, talk about your presidential platform, what you are calling for in Guatemala. Nuestras demandas son del pueblo, no es personal, es una lucha colectiva que viene diseñado desde la presidencial platform demands are the demands of the people. It's not a personal thing. It's a collective struggle that has been designed from our communities from being dispossessed of all of our wealth. Ever since the 1954 coup d'etat, ending the 10 years of democratic spring in Guatemala, well, as a result of that, we have suffered eviction of indigenous communities from places where the communities have historically lived 
and now their communities well but we don't even have anywhere to live single crop agriculture has expanded and ended up causing diseases for example as a result of a single crop agriculture so within the government plan that we put forward which is the proposal to have a constitutional assembly fighting for our rights as human beings and at the same time respecting the rights of mother earth in other words life in balance with mother earth and nature we're also proposing that we build a plurinational state in which the different indigenous peoples are present with our delegates and that will not just be used as a political banner. We need to have representation of the peoples with self-government. We need to have a political constitution drafted by the peoples. The idea is to defend life. And let me round out my answer. In the face of this situation of evictions, there's greater migration and greater migration leads to greater disintegration of families. And for those who are in Guatemala as well, it represents attack on our health. There is major malnutrition. Even though Guatemala is a territory, a country filled with wealth, but that wealth is poorly distributed. It's in just a few hands. And that is why we, the peoples, are the ones who suffer the consequences. And that is why we were right to propose a project for the nation constitutional assembly to address all of the needs that we have as a country. So when we stood up to say we are human rights defenders, then they label us as terrorists, criminals, thieves. And that is why we had to propose this project of a nation, saying we are not just rowdy ones, we're not criminals. We love life. We know how to make proposals. It's just that they're afraid of us. So what happens when you go back to Guatemala now? Uh, you, they have ruled you are not a presidential candidate. Do you accept this? Bueno, lo que pasa es que nos estamos fortaleciendo cada día más. Well, the thing is that we are getting stronger every day. They might be shutting the doors to us in these elections, but our aim is not just elections. Our struggle is getting stronger. We have shown that we have followed all the legal procedures. We are peace-loving peoples, and we respect the laws and procedures for participation. And despite that, they prohibit our participation. But we get stronger and stronger because our... Our aim is not just to participate in elections. We want to go beyond the proposing a project for the nation with structural changes, fighting corruption. Corruption is there because there are structural problems. It's a sign of the structural problems. And so we say, we have identified the illness, but we have the medicine, which is our proposal. And we're going to be strengthening our proposal, showing that we too know how to denounce the situation internationally and that we are able to follow the procedures. This is the path that we're following now. Guatemalan presidential candidate Telma Cabrera and her running mate, Jordan Rodas, they have been banned from running for president in Guatemala's June election. Special thanks to Maria Teresena, Sharina Nadura, Sam Alcoff, Mike Burke, Robbie Karen, and Charlie Roberts. Oh, and congratulations to my beloved niece, Anna, and Scott on the birth of their son, Hugo Solomon. Welcome to the world, Hugo, and congratulations to his big brother, Miles, uh, from his Valentia. I'm Amy Goodman.
Are we seven games? Dot com. question that generations of historians will debate. The Bidens order to the same dish at a restaurant. Who does that? I'll tell you who. I'll tell you who. A renegade president who's up to his bib in the biggest national food scandal since Nixon said this. I am not a cook. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Thank you. That's great. That's great for Which is why tonight calling the Biden's redundant entree scandal, all the president's menu. <laughs> now, admittedly, it's a bit of a slow news day. And I'm not the only one who is so starved for a story that is making me hangry. The media landscape is bristling with headlines like Biden and First Lady's order sparks strong reactions. Biden's restaurant order sparks furious debate. And the Bidens went to dinner and ordered the same dish. Dividing the internet. Yes. This is this this is so this is far cry from the last president and his first lady. They never got the same dish. He would order a burnt steak with ketchup, and she always had a small side of blood diamonds. But one thing that's not a mock-up, one thing one thing this firestorm proves after four years of the last guy putting us through a daily ringer and roller coaster of neo-fascist grift, we finally get to be outraged by low-stakes scandals. So break out. So break out. So break out your tan suit, eat your pizza with a fork and knife, and puke on the Prime Minister of Japan, because I think everything's going to be okay. So let me, let me walk you through exactly what we know, what went down with the Bidens. This is every detail. A few weeks back, Joe and Jill snuck out for a date to a D.C. area restaurant. Okay, that's right. Not only is today's big story about two old people eating, it happened a while ago. And here are every single one of the details. The first couple ordered a chicory salad, grilled bread and butter, and two bowls of rigatoni. How dare they order the same entree? This is America, damn it. The rule is you and your spouse go in 
with a plan. You order different entrees so you can try two things. But then the other person seems to like your thing more than the thing that they said that they wanted. So they keep taking bites until you say, you know what, why don't you just finish it? And they say, no, 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 it's yours. I'll eat my chicken Caesar. And you say, this is the Cheesecake Factory all over again. Then you forget your leftovers on the table and drive home in silence the way God intended. <laughs> Well, these days, it isn't all pasta for the press. Yesterday, Biden gave a speech to the House Democrats where he touted his administration's reduction of the deficit. Just one problem. He was a bit off on the number. Working with all of you, we cut the deficit by $1.7 billion in two years, the largest deficit reduction in American history. And when I introduced my neck... It's pretty rare. It's pretty rare for hecklers to tell you're actually doing better than you thought. You successfully rebooted the economy. also highlighted a huge win from yesterday when Eli Lilly announced it would finally lower the cost of insulin. Now, she's going to get insulin. If just going to four to five hundred bucks a month, they're going to pay thirty-five dollars a month. That's an over ninety percent discount. That's like that's like if Dollar Tree changed their name to and it's free. <laughs> Biden's chief rival is likely to be the former president, but he's no sure thing these days, in part because, according to insiders, the former president is facing a soft ban at Fox. They're banning the ex-president? That's like Discovery Channel banning sharks. (laughs) No one wants to watch Salty Water Week. Apparently, the former president has fallen out of favor with News Corp chairman and Plum You Should Have Eaten Five Days Ago, (laughs) Rupert Murdoch. According to filings in the Dominion lawsuit, Murdoch has been trying to keep the ex-prez off Fox for a long time now. After January 6th, Murdoch instructed an aide to make the former president a (laughs) non-person. He wants to make the former president persona non grata, as opposed to now when he's persona al gratin. Instead, Instead, Fox News is trying to promote other candidates, especially Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, seen here standing. Oh, is he a fatty? What a seen fatty. here standing in the middle of I'm with Stupid Boulevard. plan earlier this week, Fox sent the most information resistant of the Fox and Friends down to a diner in DeSantis' home state of Florida, actually in his old congressional district, to show just how popular DeSantis is. 2024, who's pumped up for the election? Rapid fire, who's your man, who's your woman? My man, Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Who's your man? Trump. A woman. Trump. A lot of Trump fans. <laughs> not the answer I was looking for. Have you guys not heard there's a soft ban? Okay. Please, someone say anyone else's name or Rupert's going to take my thumbs. You, sir. Anything. <laughs> 
Then he saw one ray of hope in the room, a woman wearing a DeSantis t-shirt. I see, I see uh, Governor DeSantis, and what about President DeSantis? I like it, I like uh, it. Who's your pick? Oh gosh, I don't know, Trevor DeSantis, I'm either one. Either or, either or, you're wearing a Ron DeSantis t-shirt. That's like Mr. Met saying, go Mets, or Yankees, I'm not really into baseball. This is just an unrelated medical condition. It's pretty. It's a weird priority, but uh, all across the country, Republicans are now laser focused on one issue, banning drag and the latest hateful dummy. The latest hateful dummy to jump on the turd wagon is Texas State Representative and guy who broke up with his last girlfriend because she didn't like impractical jokers. Nate Schatzline. Schatzline has authored a bill that would seek to limit drag by designating any establishment as a sexually oriented business if it allows on-premises consumption of alcoholic beverages and performances by a person wearing any clothing or makeup not stereotypical to their born sex. If serving alcohol and having men in gowns makes you a sexually oriented business, I've got bad news about church. So Schatzline wants to stop people from publicly wearing anything that does not conform to traditional definitions of gender, which is why people had some confusion when this video emerged of him in high school running around. Okay, that's him in front in the dress, and that's drag. And now he's trying to ban it for everyone else. This is the most hypocritical move since Nancy Reagan's famous anti-drug campaign. Just say no, because that's my bag of coke. Back off or I'll cut a bitch. Let's shift the energy, why won't we? Why don't we? Let's see here. Five, nine hundred, ninety-eight hundred for all your construction needs. sit down with a man who has been delighting moviegoers for the last 50 years, Steven Spielberg, the legendary director who rarely does television and has never done late night, has been responsible for some of our greatest cultural touchstones. Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., Jurassic Park, Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan, Munich, Lincoln, last year's West Side Story, and his latest, The Fablemans is nominated for seven Academy Awards, including Best Director and Best Picture. It's a semi-autobiographical telling of Steven Spielberg's own youth, 
Through Sammy Fableman, we learn about how this iconic director fell in love with making movies and the secret he kept that led to the shattering of his family. Mr. Spielberg was kind enough to invite me into his Amblin offices for an extensive conversation about his life and his films. Jim? Steven Spielberg, thank you for having us here at Amblin and sitting down to talk about the Fablemans in your career. Welcome, welcome, welcome here. There's a sort of a mythical story that you actually got into Universal for the first time as part of a tour and just stayed. I did. How, how did you do that? I, I hid in the bathroom during a bathroom break. It was a big bus called the Gray Line Tours. They didn't have trams in those days. And you got on a big bus and they took you around the lot and showed you the back lot and Western Street and all the sound stages from outside. But I kept wanting to get inside the sound stages. They weren't letting us off the bus, but they gave us one bathroom break. So I, I, I stayed in the stall until I heard all the doors closing. And I just gave it another 10 minutes and I, 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 then I was sort of loose on the lot. Is it true that you took an empty office and just claimed it as your own and put your name on the door? Yeah, I used, in those, there was a camera store down on Ventura Boulevard and Laurel Canyon that uh, sold these little title letters, these little stick-on letters, sticky on one side, and I went and bought a set of those, and I put my name in that little directory that you open up the little door, the glass door, and yes. put my name on that and the room number, and uh, and that was where I hung my hat for during a summer. The and second summer I had, I, I had done that. But nobody knew that you were doing this. Yeah, yeah, there were people who knew I was doing it, but nobody that get kicked off the lot. Sid Scheinberg, then the VP of the studio, yeah. was impressed with your short film, Amblin, and what year was it? 1968? 68. 68, okay. Yeah. And he offered you a seven-year directing contract. Right. And as part of that, the very first person you ever directed, I understand, who had a SAG union card was Joan Crawford. That's right. Okay. You were how old at this point? 22, I think. How did you, as a 22-year-old, give notes and direct an icon like Joan Crawford? Where did you find the, what's the Yiddish word, huevos rancheros to do that? Chutzpah <laughs> is another word. Okay. And uh, although I think it was more Sid Scheinberg's chutzpah to hire me in the first place. Um, what's that first moment, like when you walk on the set and there's well, Joan Crawford? Well, I, I had met Joan before at the, at the house she was renting. Uh, somewhere in Hollywood. I had met her. She wanted to meet me. And I went up there with John Batten, the associate producer. And when we were supposed to go out to dinner to Musso and Frank's, mm-hmm. we walked into the front door and Joan took one look at me and said, we can't go out to dinner now. People will think you're my son. That was the first thing she said to me. First words out of Joan Carver's mouth, people will think you're my son. Were you shaving yet? Uh, it, well, it, it, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I was using Clearasil. <laughs> Oh, so you can watch TV. Yes. Uh, Marcus Welby, MD, Columbo, the name of the game. Mm-hmm. Do you have any advice for the, the young guy who was shooting these TV things? Is there anything you see in that work and you go, oh, I wish I could go back and tell him this? I, I, I think I think uh, there's always things that I – this is why I don't look at a lot, a lot of my movies after I've made them. I don't sit down – I'm not Gloria Swanson at Sunset Boulevard having screenings of her own set of movies for herself, you know. So I don't look back that often. But uh, every once in a while, I'll see a movie with my kids because I, 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 I want to accompany my kids when they see E.T. for the first time. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want them to see E.T. without dad sitting there, mm-hmm. especially the scary parts at the beginning. And um, 
And sometimes I see things that I had intended to do that I didn't do. And sometimes I see things that would have been a better idea than what I'm now seeing all those years later. But for the most part, BT's a pretty perfect movie. So I it's one of one of the one of the few movies I've made that I can actually look back and look at again and again. Only a handful of movies I can watch except more than once, but not not a lot. I've made like thirty four films, and I'm not going to name which ones they are beyond ET. It's about five or six films that I can watch again, but I don't usually do that. Before the Fablemans, you've said that Close Encounters of the Third Kind was the most personal film that you had made. Why? Well, it, it was the first film I'd ever made about a family breaking up. I never made a picture of a, of a, of a, of a family coming into uh, colliding mm-hmm. with their values or with their and with their obsessions. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it, it was so a lot of the breakup, which I wrote the script, so I think I, it was very evocative of my own life and the trauma that we all suffered. My parents announced to all of us that they were they were separating, and then later they would be divorcing. The for the characters for the kids certainly in Close Encounters, it's inexplicable. Their father's behavior is madness. Yeah, did that was that what that felt like to you at the time? I, I think when you're young, I was not that young when my parents announced they were seventeen, just about ready to go off to college. But I think it is madness. I think when you are so confident that. It, you know, it, it it may snow in the desert in Arizona, and that wouldn't surprise you someday, mm-hmm. but your parents will never leave you. You will never be unaccompanied. And when I saw that happening, when my sister saw that all of a sudden what we considered to be normal, and with a mom and a dad, we were all, all we were suddenly going to have a mom living there and a father living there, and we were going to separate and divide up. And that 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 informed that that has informed many of my stories. When we come back, I asked Steven Spielberg why now is the right time for him to make the fable ones. Stick around. Hold on, everybody. Welcome back, everybody. And now return to my conversation with Steven Spielberg. Had you been thinking about telling the story of the Fablemans for a long time? Yeah, for years. Yeah. What kept you from telling it before this, or why was this the right moment? You know, I I, I think that I just had, for one thing, I had a lot of passions and things I, stories I was telling and things I had on my my kind of wish list. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't even call it a bucket list. It was just, I really want to make this kind of movie. I want to make get into that genre. I want to do a movie about, you know, I want to do a movie about uh, AI. I mean, I had all these other things. But, and I and I, and I realized I kept putting segments of the Fableman story into all of these other films. It's a daring thing to look at your own life, I think, um, if you can do it honestly. Yeah. Because there are big things that you maybe yeah. didn't want to remember about your yes. own life. Right. Is there any point where you said, this might be a mistake? Yes. I thought, by making by by telling a story about how I discovered my mom was having an affair of the heart mm-hmm. with her and my father's best friend and my father's business partner was something that never had to be publicly, you know, expressed. And and I had a lot I had a lot of second thoughts about that. But to his credit, Tony Kushner continued to say 
that is the MacGuffin of this movie. That is the that is the center ring in the circus of your life. That is the center ring. And that's where you're going to be flying through the air on a trapeze, and there's not going to be a net. And I think you can afford, with all your success, to possibly slip and fall to your death. And don't worry about that, because you've earned the right to tell the story. It's a brilliant movie. I think it's very beautiful. Um, that might be the greatest moment in it, though, is the moment of discovery, where Sam, without words, in the purest filmic way, mm-hmm. discovers something through the lens of his camera. Right. Mm-hmm. can see more through the lens than you see in your daily life? Yes. Because I obviously observed my mom's behavior, how she lit up when she was around mm-hmm. you know, Bernie. Mm-hmm. And I never thought there was anything untoward about that. I never was suspicious about that. It just My mom had a best friend who happened to be my dad's business partner. But somehow when I put a aspect ratio around that and looked through my little Bolex eight millimeter camera and took it home and started cutting my little, all the little camping trip film together. The film told me the truth where my eyes couldn't perceive it. And so it was something I couldn't see as a human interacting with my mom and dad and Bertie walking, you know, you know, you know, on, on these camping trips, but somehow on that little teeny ground glass screen of the movie editor, it, it, I saw something that I never saw with my own eyes. What was it like to step onto the set for the first day with Paul Dano and Michelle Williams as your mom and dad? Well, I thought that was going to be just routine. Because done a million times. Yeah, done a million times. I know what a first day of shooting is like. I know what it's like to get the cast assembled and to figure out the blocking of the first thing you're about to shoot with the cast and the camera and all that. And it, it was it was very routine, but I had never seen them together. I'd only, done, I had only seen Michelle in her costume with Mark Bridges, who designed the costumes, or with uh, uh, and Paul Dano, I saw them always separate. But on the first day of shooting, uh, Mark Bridges came over to me and said, uh, "I've got Paul, I've got Paul and Michelle here, uh, in, in their hair, makeup, and costumes." And I was talking to, I think, Christy. And so I turned around, and I turned around, and there was my father, and my mother, and I just burst into tears. I mean, just like that. I, I didn't even think about it. It just happened. And uh, uh, Michelle ran to me, hugged me. Paul came around the back of me. He's really tall. Hugged me around the shoulders, and just just held me. And I and I had I had, by the way I had given them speeches long before the first day of shooting. I got all my tears out right from the script with Tony Kushner. When Tony and I co-wrote this thing, I got all my emotion out. I'm a professional. Don't worry about me. You don't have to take care of me. My job is to take care of you and guide you to giving some great performances. Yeah. And. Uh, wasn't to be. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the monkey. 
How long did your family have the monkey? My mom, my family didn't have the monkey. My mom had the monkey. She went to a pet store. That's your parson. Oh, oh. You're splitting hairs. Oh, my mom. Like, if there's a monkey in the house, the whole family has. Well, we we had to live with the monkey. You know, but, but I didn't put this in the Fablemans. But the monkey would basically throw its feces at us through the bars of his or the the mesh of his cage. I mean, this was an ornery little monkey. Young. Sam, and I assume young Steven Spielberg, is bullied and feels alienated by his Jewishness. And you've said it took years for you to embrace your, your heritage and not doing so fully until you were actually making Schindler's List. Um, with the province of the film, you created the Shoah Foundation. And I'm curious, as someone who's examined his, his own Jewishness in the, in the place of Jews, not only in the United States, but, but around the world, do you find it surprising the rise of public anti-Semitism, not only in the United States, but in authoritarian countries all around the world now? Yeah, I, I find it very, very surprising because anti-Semitism has always been there. It's It's either been just around the corner and slightly out of sight, but always lurking, or it has been much more overt, like in Germany in the 30s. Um, but not since Germany in the 30s have I witnessed anti-Semitism no longer lurking, but standing proud with hands on hips like Hitler and Mussolini, uh, uh, kind of daring us to defy it. I've never experienced this in my entire life, especially in this country. It's disturbing. It's heartbreaking. Do you have any theories as to why it's raising its ugly head? Somehow the marginalizing of people that aren't part of some kind of a majority race uh, is, is something that has been creeping up on us for years and years and years. And somehow... 2014, 2015, 2016, hate became a kind of membership to a club that has gotten more members than I ever thought was possible in America. And hate and anti-Semitism go hand in hand. You can't separate one from the other. As one of the greatest communicators in the world, what gives you hope that the gambit that is divisiveness and hate and anger as a political policy, that it will not succeed. What, what is the countervailing message to that that you would want to say? I, I just think without painting a naive portrait of myself sitting here talking to you and to quote Anne Frank, I think she's right when she said, in most people there's good. She saw good in most people. And I think, essentially, at our core, there is goodness. And there is empathy. When we come back, Steven Spielberg and I are joined by legendary composer, the great John Williams. Stick around. Hold on, everybody. Gonna skip right over this commercial.
sentence to get you the money you deserve. Call now and talk to us for free. We'll make sure justice is served. Hurt, call Bert. 332-BERT. Exciting enough to talk to Steven Spielberg, we were joined by a very special guest. John Williams has been Steven Spielberg's closest collaborator. They've worked on nearly every project together from 1974's Sugarland Express to The Fablements, which marks John Williams' 53rd Oscar nomination. He's been responsible for some of the most iconic scores in film history. So I understand that in 2022 marked your 50th anniversary of uh, working together. You guys met in 1972. First film that you did was Sugarland Express in 1974 with Stephen. Right. Um, is it true that you're you guys met on basically a, a first date that somebody else set up? Was it a blind date? Your first somebody date? set up a meeting, a lunch meeting for us in in some fancy restaurant in Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. And uh, the head waiter came and he said, I was bringing to Mr. Spielberg. And I saw this, uh, a teenager, I thought, you got to forgive me, Stephen. Tell us story. I'm not even here. Tell you, okay, so I thought, I, I, I thought maybe that's Mr. Spielberg's son. Where's Spielberg? <laughs> and I, of course, I sat down with him. And within a minute or two, I realized this is somebody very, very special with a keen and bristling, dazzling intellect. Remembered everything I'd ever written that I'd already forgotten. I had a huge collection of soundtracks. And when I heard John's score for the Reavers, I said to myself, if I ever get a chance to direct movies, I want this guy to score all of them. (laughs) This is back in 1972. I have a very simple question What's your job? I don't mean that facetiously. What's your job? No, no, it's a wonderful question. It's very, very simple. Uh, but I don't know if I can give you a simple answer. But my job with film, I think the first answer that I can give you is that is to is to inform and uh, improve in, in the process of storytelling through music, if I can. Mm-hmm. Uh, describe the characters, describe the atmosphere and the ambiance of what the what the story requires, and so. Uh, my job is to be a collaborator with the director in achieving all these things, the atmospherics, the emotional content, and so on. Stephen, you said, I depend on John Moore than I depend on anybody to rewrite my movies musically and put them a rung higher than I could ever reach. What do you think it is about John that allows him to understand your intention and to amplify that in a way that you can't reach yourself? Well, John puts a lot of stock in the first impression of watching the story on spool when he sees the film for the first time. And he puts a lot of stock in that. And um, and I think there is some kind of a, something happens which is beyond, certainly way beyond my ability to 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 sort of do an autopsy on the genius of John Williams. I don't know how to do that. I just know that something happens. The film connects with Johnny. Johnny has ideas as he's watching the film. He lets the story unspooling roll over him, make him feel something. And he is somehow able to take those feelings, those emotions, and he's able to find the musical equivalent of of emotion, of energy, of of creating a musical narrative, of Binding all the disparate parts of a movie story into a very smooth, 
narrative musically, and he just has a way of doing this unlike anyone I've ever seen perform his job. We just agree about aesthetic choices and matters of taste. We've never had an argument. No, never. It, it really? It, no. no. We never had 29 films that's done together. really surprising. Maybe. No. Is it because you both acknowledge each other's lanes and, <laughs> and that you're both, you know, a master speaking to a master? And... Well, I don't think it's that as much as it's we're in the same lane and uh, without playing bumper cars. We just have a way of, you know, I've, I've never not liked something that John has written for one of my movies. I've never said, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't feel that's right for my movie, or I don't think we should use that piece of music at this point. I, I, everything Johnny has written has fit like a glove, and so there's never been bumps of my, about my disagreeing with something that he's composed, ever. We didn't have enough time in tonight's show for my full conversation with John Williams, but tune in next week. We'll have more with Steven and John on their famous collaborations. And when we return, I ask Steven Spielberg about UFOs. Stick around. Hold on, everybody. Hold on. We win. You have nothing to lose and everything to gain. Welcome back, everybody. And now, the thrilling conclusion of my conversation with a man I now feel comfortable calling Mr. Spielberg. Let's talk about UFOs for a minute. What do you make of what's going on right now? Oh, it's exciting. <laughs> There's something out there. So you're a believer. I don't know if I'm a believer in the sense that I'm kind of the person that would think I, I got to see something like that to believe it. I'll, I, I can make up stuff sure. and make movies about things that I've never seen or experienced, and that's fine. But in terms of really believing something, I think I'd have to have my own close encounter. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ha- I've never seen a UFO. I wish I wish I did. Nothing that's unexplained. I've never seen anything that I couldn't explain. Mm-hmm. But I believe certain people who have seen things that they can't explain that is unexplainable. Um, I think what has been coming out recently is fascinating, just absolutely fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the secrecy that is shrouding all of these sightings mm-hmm. and the lack of transparency until Freedom of Information Act compels certain materials to be released publicly, I think that there is something going on that simply needs extraordinary um you know, due diligence. I mean, I just, I, I would like to hear more about it. I don't know what they are. Uh, my imagination and my love for, you know, I, I don't believe we're alone in the universe. I think it's mathematically impossible that we are the only, you know, you know, intelligent species in, in, in the cosmos. I think that's totally impossible. At the same time, it almost seems impossible that anybody would visit us from 400 million light years from here, mm-hmm. except in the movies, Unless it figures out some way of, you know, sort of, you know, basically uh, jumping the shark, so to speak, mm-hmm. and getting here through wormholes or, or, or uh, so I, I'm not a astrophysicist. I really can't speak the language of the people that do it so well out of JPL. Mm-hmm. But I just know as a person that makes movies and uses his imagination and also as a person that is 
that is insatiably curious about UFOs or UAPs yes. that that there's something something going on that we're really not being made made. It's not being disclosed to us. Well, senators who have been briefed on this, and I don't mean just these latest balloon-ish incidents, senators who have been briefed on this have said there are things the American people deserve to know, and the quote I love is, and they're ready to learn. And that says to me that there's something sort of um, paradigm-shattering about this news that we're not being told. You know the most optimistic thing I feel about these things that we're seeing in the skies are the Army and Navy and Air Force are recording on their on their on their gun cameras. Is that what if they're not from an advanced civilization, three hundred million light years from here? But what if it's us, five hundred thousand years into the future, that is coming back to document the second half of the twentieth century and into the first twentieth century because they're anthropologists and they know something that we don't quite know yet that has occurred and they're trying to track uh, um, um, the last hundred years of our of our history. Well, the hopeful part about that to me is that we survive. Yes, that we survive, or a certain percentage of us survive that allows these other generations to flourish. Okay, if there are aliens, is your bet on E.T. or War of the Worlds? E.T. Your bet is on E.T. Oh, yeah, yeah. War of the Worlds are just sort of a reflection of 9-11. It was my way of making a story about the impact that 9-11 had on all of us. I believe that if any extraterrestrial civilization has, has, has journeyed all the way here, it's, it's because of curiosity and science, and it's not about aggression. Because if they can get here, they don't need our resources. They must have enormous resources already. Yeah, exactly. And the fact they've been this patient with us, and haven't turned the earth into a burned out cinder is 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 extraordinary. That they that if there is is anything happening, you have to applaud them for their patience. You're Steven Spielberg, and obviously people pitch you movie ideas all the time. Yes. And uh, I have a great idea, and you know, use it, don't use it, but I just want you to hear me out, okay? Et two. Is that the title, E.T. 2, It's Time? It doesn't matter what the title is. It doesn't matter what the title is. Just E.T. 2, Electric Boogaloo. It doesn't matter. We make E.T. 2, and you're going to go, well, what's it about? It's about a billion-dollar opening weekend, Steve. Okay? You'll admit that, that it would be the highest-grossing opening weekend of all time, E.T. 2. Or nobody will show up because they love E.T. 1 too much. You're crazy. You're crazy. Okay, I got some titles. E.T. again. Too extra, too terrestrial. <laughs> Look who's E.T.ing now. E.T. v. Predator. Would you want to see the Predator fight E.T.? That, that's, like, that, that's, like, that's like Yoda in the last Star Wars movie where he fought so yes, wonderfully. Exactly. We got a CGI E.T. We give him a lightsaber. It's a crossover. I don't know. I don't think know. about it. Don't, I don't answer me now. I don't, Stephen. The weaponizing of ET. I don't think. <laughs> I don't think that's such a really? good idea. It's a different world. 
1982, obviously, E.T.'s not going to have a lightsaber. He doesn't have any armor. He can deflect things with his mind. He has no clothes. If it wasn't for Gertie and the Elliot, he wouldn't even That's have true. that robe. That's true. How did you get away? How did you get away with I've a often, full frontal nudity on an alien? I've often wondered when people report seeing the greys yes. being abducted by extraterrestrials yeah. and stuff, why they're not wearing clothes. Why are they all naked? What, why or maybe it's just a very tight skin suit. Maybe it's a cat suit. Maybe it has a th- maybe it's a whole thermostatic system. Maybe they're not even gray. Maybe it zips off. <laughs> maybe, zip, maybe, maybe it zips off. off and All right. And just one more time on the ET2. Okay. This time we do it right. Forget Reese's Pieces. The M&M people are going to become crawling to you this time. <laughs> yeah, but you know something? They had their shot. Wow. Loyalty. You like to work with the same people over and over again. I'm very loyal to so people I'm, who are loyal to me. I'm smiling that this is, a, was loyal. this is not a hard no is what I'm hearing, that you've thought about this. Well, I certainly thought about a, 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 a sort of a, 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 an endless supply of Reese's Pieces. Did you ever think about a sequel to E.T.? No, never. <laughs> so, I'm just going to leave this with you. I'm just going to look at you. I'm just going to look at you. I just want you just, just whatever, like... Look through it. Don't look through it. Don't get it now. Don't get it now. Well, I don't want say, it says E2 Brute. It's mm-hmm. E2 Brute. Okay. I got one sentence for you, and that is E.T. make bank. <laughs> That's my Christmas card. I'm, I'm going to open this when I'm, when I'm in the office, and I'm going to yes. write you a letter about it. Um, oh, my God, there's actually a script here. What are you thinking? I'm not going to touch Steven Spielberg and E.T.? No, I'm taking this to J.J. I'm giving it to, I'm giving it to J.J. Abrams. Thanks again to Steven Spielberg, John Williams, and everyone at Amblin. You can watch The Fablemans in theaters and at home now. Okay, I think this is just about the end here. Last, yeah, that's just a goodbye. Hey, that's a delight of Economic Update, the weekly program devoted to the economic dimensions of our lives, jobs, debts, incomes, our own and those of our children. I'm your host, Richard Wolf. In today's program, we're going to be talking about unionization, unions, labor actions across the country because they are heating up and changing the face of how we live our lives. And I'm also going to be talking about tax injustice, two different kinds. And then we're going to have an interview with a very important writer, Professor David Rucci. So let's jump right in. The first little factoid to set the tone is what has happened to Starbucks workers across the United States. At the beginning of 2022, roughly a year ago, 
no Starbucks workers were unionized. As I'm speaking to you, the number has crossed 7,000. Across hundreds of Starbucks stores, workers who had needed and wanted a union for a long time, but were unable to overcome the opposition of the company or their own anxieties and worries, made the change. They became leaders of a unionization movement and a strike movement sweeping that corporation, as indeed it is sweeping the whole country. Let me give you another example. For the first time in the history of the state of Texas, a newspaper in Texas had its journalists, its workers, form a union. They did that two years ago. They struggled to get a contract with their employer. He didn't come across. They had a strike over recent weeks, and guess what? That did it. The employer signed the contract and gave the workers an enormous wage increase. For those of you that are interested, I'm talking about the 117-year-old Fort Worth Star-Telegram, which is now a unionized uh, newspaper for the first time in the state of Texas. But right on its heels, there are two more efforts pretty much going through the same experience, one in Dallas and one in Austin. So pretty soon, the unionized workers in Fort Worth will have their fellow unionized journalists elsewhere in the state. And the third one I wanted to mention, choosing different parts of the country and different kinds of workers, is one I have a personal history with. Yale University's graduate students, roughly 2,000 of them, have been working for many, many decades. Why do I know that? Because I was one. I was a graduate student some years ago, and I worked at Yale. And I worked for a ridiculous low amount of money for my professor who wanted me to do it. And you don't say no to the professor who holds your future in his hands. And I say his because there were very few hers at that time. Well, those workers have been trying for decades to have a union so they get paid better, so that there's a little more care taken in providing them with the support they need to get their master's degree or their PhD degree. And Yale is a vicious and long-standingly vicious anti-union, anti-worker institution. It took a long time for the building and grounds workers to get a union, which they have at Yale. It took an even longer time for the clerical and technical workers at Yale to struggle for and win and get a union. And now it's the turn of the graduate students. Not only did the 2000 vote for a union, but I want to tell you what the vote was. 1,860 in favor of the union, 179 against it, a 91% landslide vote. The workers at Yale have come a long way. And I know personally, because I remember how hard the university worked to convince us we were graduate students, we were gonna become professors. We weren't like um, truck drivers. We want nothing to do with the union and all of that. And it persuaded a large number of students doesn't work anymore. The students understand when it comes time to pay your bills, 
tell people how much education you have, they still want the bill paid. You still have to earn a living. So there's remarkable things going on across the working class of the United States. We haven't seen anything like this for almost a century. I'll pick yet one more to close out this session, a section of my book this morning. I want to make clear that there are other things going on in the labor movement. And so I found something that struck me as very important. Thanks to some listeners and watchers of this program who sent this material to me. I'm talking about the Western Massachusetts Area Labor Federation. That's a part of the AFL-CIO. It's the area of Western Massachusetts, which has a federation of all the local unions across all industries, manufacturing services, all of it. And they get together on a regular basis. And they voted on January 9th of this year uh, to condemn, I'm going to quote now because I want to get it right, to condemn in the strongest possible terms the Biden administration's conduct of December 2nd, 2022. And here the resolution was real clear. And to make it clear to all of you, that's when Mr. Biden enforced the return of railway workers, thousands of them that were on strike or threatening to go on strike, to deny them the right to strike. They've been negotiating with the company. They've been doing what those Fort Worth journalists have done, what the Starbucks workers have done, what the Yale grad students have done. They were doing the same thing, exercising the right to strike, to improve their working conditions and their pay. And the Biden administration came in, didn't have to, came in and threatened them with being arrested and put in jail if they exercised the right to strike, which used to be thought of as a basic part of anything calling itself a democracy. So let me read to you the resolution that was passed, by the way, unanimously by the Western Mass Area Federation of Labor. Quote, the right to strike is a fundamental human right. Any legislation that denies workers right to strike, whether the bill that Biden signed on December 2nd, 2022, the Railway Labor Act of 1926, or Section 9A of the Massachusetts Public Employee Collective Bargaining Law. Any abridgment of that right to strike, they go on to say, quote, serves the interests of the bosses over the interests of the working class and should be deemed illegitimate. They then ask their fellow workers to support the following four-point program. One, unions should stand in solidarity via our voices and our union resources with the railway workers' demand for the right to paid sick time, that was a big issue for them, and reasonable work schedules. Two, we should organize our members to resolve problems by taking collective action in our workplaces. Number three, we should build a democratic union where workers' desires and needs are immediately taken seriously and acted upon. And fourth and final, we should deepen labor's commitment to hold elected officials accountable to represent the interests of working people. And if and when they don't, we should hold, withhold our labor 
and our donations. Take heed, Democratic Party. Your reliance on the labor movement with giving so little back is coming to an end, and that's led by the folks in Western Massachusetts. I want to talk to you also, as tax season approaches, about the tax system here in the United States, which is so fundamentally unfair and unjust. The way to deal with that is to identify the unfairness and fix it. The way not to deal with it is to cut the number of internal revenue service agents trying to find uh, people who are cheating the government out of the taxes they owe. What do I mean by injustice? Let's remember what taxes do. We have basically three kinds of taxes in the United States. Number one, we tax income. When you earn money, your wage, your salary, your rent, whatever you have that brings you in money, you are asked to pay a tax on the income. That's the first kind. Second kind, you are also taxed when you spend the money you've earned. For example, you pay a sales tax when you go to the department store and buy a shirt for your friends or yourself. You're also required to pay a tax when you spend money on alcohol. That's a federal tax. Cigarettes, that's a federal tax. And motor fuel, gasoline, so on. So those are taxes when you spend money. Then there's a third kind of tax, not on the money you earn, not on the money you spend, but on the wealth you own. It's a property tax. Most of us pay more than one of them. Some of us pay all three of them. So if you hear someone say, I'm double taxed, you should grin or sneer. Most of us are. There's nothing special about being doubly taxed. That's how tax systems work. But here's the injustice. When I said to you that there's a property tax, now I can explain to you the injustice. It's a tax on property in the form of land. If you own land, you pay a tax on the value of the land. On a building, if there is one on the land, a home, a store, you pay a tax on the value of that property. If you have an automobile, you pay a tax for that. So do you pay a tax on all property? No. There's one enormous category of property that pays no property tax at all. Let me be real clear. Stocks and bonds is what I'm talking about. If you're really rich, most of your wealth is in the form of stocks and bonds. Most Americans have no wealth at all. If they have something, they have a home, they have land, they have a house, and they pay property tax on that. But if you're rich enough to have not only a car and a home, but stocks and bonds that make you really rich, those stocks and bonds pay no property tax at all. The 10% richest people in this country own 80% of the stocks and bonds. You get the picture? They are tax exempt. That's why the rich get richer and you and I don't. We have a tax system that grotesquely favors those who need the favor least while continuing to tax your average person barely able to afford a home and a car. The injustice of it is screaming. And here's the second injustice. In Europe today, in England and in Portugal particularly, the government 
has what are called excess profits taxes, sometimes called windfall profits tax. If you have extra profit, not because of anything you've done, but because of catastrophes facing society, the idea is you should not be able to benefit from catastrophes that hurt other people. So your excess profits, not the ones you get anyway, but the excess because of the catastrophe should be taxed by the government to help the people that are mm -hmm, suffering from the catastrophe. So England taxes energy prices, oil and gas, because they went up through the Ukraine war and the policies of governments to punish Russia for that war. That has nothing to do with the company that's making a billion out of charging high prices. Same thing is happening to food companies because of the difficulties of uh, fertilizer coming out of Russia, Ukraine. To food prices have gone up, as everybody knows. And this is making huge profits for the food companies, but hurting all the people who have to pay the higher prices. So you tax the excess profits of the food companies to help the people that are suffering the high prices. Portugal just did it. Britain has done it. And I want you to understand, not only has the United States not done it, nobody proposes it. Nobody discusses it. We're all supposed to pretend that we don't know that that's happening, which is why I have mentioned it to you now. We've come to the end of the first part of today's show. Please stay with us. We will be right back with professor and author David Ruccio. Please stay with us. We will be right back. Mm -hmm. Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's economic update. It is with great pleasure and happiness that we have him with us today that I want to introduce my guest. Uh, he is David Ruccio. Uh, he's a professor of economics emeritus, sort of like me, but in his case, it's from the University of Notre Dame in Indiana. He's the author of over 90 journal articles and book chapters. He helped start the journal Rethinking Marxism and was its chief editor for 12 years. His latest book, Marxian Economics and Introduction, was published last year by Polity Press. His blog, quite well known, is called Occasional Links and Commentary on Economics, Culture, and Society. And his posts frequently appear on other blogs, including Real World Economics Review blog. So first of all, David, since I'm gonna call you that since we've known each other so, so many years, Thank you very much for taking the time and trouble to join us. Thanks, Rick. Thanks for having me on. Let's jump right in and talk about your, your new book, really, literally just off the press. You know, I've been around long enough, as you have, to know that Marxism in its long history over the second half of the 19th century, the 20th century, and into this century, has been pronounced over with, dead, gone, retired, disappeared, countless times, only to surprise everybody uh, within 10 or 20 years to have a sudden resurgence. Is your book part of a resurgence now? Um, and if it is, is that part of why you wrote about it? So how do you relate to this history of the, of the interest in Marxism in general and Marxian economics in particular? Um, 
Good question. Uh, in all honesty, um, yes and no. Um, the no is um, I didn't sit down to write it because things are going badly with capitalism and people are interested in alternatives. Um, you and I have been doing this for many, many years through good times and bad. Um, as I once told a, a group of students um, when they asked me to talk about the, 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 uh, the crisis of 2007, 2008, I, I walked in and I said, I hate capitalism. Um, I hate it when it's going poorly, as it is now, and I hate it when it's going well, uh, as it has at other times. Um, so this is what we do, and we've been doing it for a long time. I think, however, it was part of Polity's invitation. I mean, everyone's invited me to, to, they wanted a book on Marxist economics. Um, and I put aside another project and decided to work on it. So I, I would have done it at any time. Now I think is a is a particularly interesting time. I, I think, you know, I mean, we, we go back a long ways. We can we can make the argument, I, I think, effectively that capitalism has always had its critics, and mainstream economics has always had its critics ever ever since they began. The way I do it in the book is, capitalism brings forth its critical other, and always has. But this time is a little bit different. After 2007, 2008, right? What some people call the Great Recession, I call the Second Great Depression. Um, after the pandemic, um, after the Black Lives Matter movement, after the concern about not only the environment but now climate crisis, I think I think people, and especially young people, are now on one hand more critical of capitalism and more interested in alternatives, what we call socialism than at any other time in, in recent memory. So I think there's a kind of new opening here. Yeah, I think that I saw a poll just the other day that made me think about this again in agreement with your point. This is a Gallup poll, and it showed that 28% of Americans identify politically with the Republicans, and about 28% identify with the Democrats. 41% say they are opposed to both of them. They call themselves independent. And my guess is, if you looked at the ages, the older you got, they'd be in the first two groups, and the younger you got, they'd be in the third group, which ought to make critics of the system sit up and take notice. All right, let me put the same question to you slightly differently. Who do you want to read this book? Who who are you trying to reach? What, what is it you hope this book will do or B for the potential reader? Listen, like every author in the world, I want to reach everybody. <laughs> I want everyone to read the book. But, but you know, I mean, you know, you've written many, many books. Um, you have an audience in mind. And the particular audience I had in mind um, were my students. Right? So I'm retired now. I'm not in the classroom. But I, I saw them as I wrote Right, and part of based upon my lecture notes, plus lots of new stuff, and it's it's for all of those students who are forced in one way or another to take their introduction to economics. You taught introduction to economics, I did it for many decades, um, and never learn about alternatives. So when they get introduction to economics, they get a celebration of capitalism, and they get a very narrowly defined mainstream economics. They don't get anything else. This book, hopefully, is one of those other things. 
In fact, just to let you know, I was contacted literally a week ago by a student at the University of Notre Dame, where I used to teach, who's interested in Marxian economics, and said he went to the department and no one could help him. Not only are they not Marxists, they're not even red. They're not even, they're not even literate in the tradition. So he's got nowhere to turn. So what does he do? He heard from some of my former colleagues in philosophy and literature that there's this retired guy who might be able to help you out. So the kid contacted me. And being who I am, I said, okay. So we're literally this coming Sunday doing a Zoom session on this book. Wonderful, wonderful. I want to pick up on your mentioning your uh, place of teaching for all those years, Notre Dame. And I have kind of two connected questions. Okay. What was it like? How were you treated? And this is one of the major uh, Catholic universities uh, in the United States, probably the best known. Um, it's a place that is trying to be taken seriously as a, as a university. Uh, and I... I want you at the same time to answer the question that so many conservative politicians in this country like to say that somehow American universities are quote unquote full of Marxists. And I want you, because you actually worked in one, uh, to tell me whether there's any sense to what they're saying. And also beyond what you've already told us in the story of that student, what was it like? to be a professor in an American university like Notre Dame with the interests and the scholarship that you've devoted to being a critic of capitalism? Um, you know, it, 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 it's a tale of two periods for me at Notre Dame. Um, in terms of your second question, would but that it were the case that American colleges and universities were full of Marxists? Um, they are not. They, they weren't at Notre Dame. They are not at, at all the college universities that I know of in the United States and in many places around the world. Um, they may be liberals um, of a kind of American traditional liberal thinking. Um, they are in many ways critical of what exists out there right now. Maybe that's, you know, certainly more liberal than the general population. But they're not Marxists in any way, shape, or form. They, they, they are not. They have not read Marx. Um, and when I would raise questions, they would look at me like, what, what, what are you talking about? Uh, they hadn't gotten in their own education. Notre Dame hired me as a Marxist. Um, got my PhD at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, right, where you taught. Um, they knew exactly what my background was and what my research was on. Uh, which was done on, on socialist planning, various forms of socialism around the world. And that's why they hired me. And it was interesting, because this was one of the few economics departments in the country, still a majority mainstream economist, who prided itself on being an eclectic department. They wanted a little bit of everything. They wanted neoclassical economists and Keynesian economists, but they also wanted post-Keynesian and structuralists and, and pro-labor and in my case, a Marxist economist. They thought that I kind of identified with the Catholic social tradition. And so we did, for a couple of decades, have a thriving economics department in which faculty could conduct their research and teach their courses 
and students would get all kinds of different stories or narratives about what capitalism was about, different criticisms of capitalism, different criticisms of mainstream economics, and some of the alternatives. And then things changed. And what changed was not just at Notre Dame. What things changed was American universities, what I call the new corporate university. And Notre Dame was certainly part of that. And it is interesting for us in economics, because economics is taken to be one of those key disciplines. They don't really care about literature. They don't really care about anthropologists. They really care about economics. And the administration, not the faculty, and not the students at Notre Dame decided they wanted a mainstream department. They wanted to get rid of all that eclecticism. They wanted to get rid of all that variety. They wanted just neoclass. And they stated this openly, neoclass economists. And as you know, that, that makes them like lots, most economics departments around the country, where students don't learn economic history. They don't learn the history of economic thought. They certainly don't learn Marxian economics or many of the other alternatives. They learn just one way of doing and thinking about economics. And it's a shame. And it means that we end up with, in terms of economics, a kind of illiterate population. You know, and the double irony, the same period of time in which they got rid of all of the Marxists, among others, is the time when the conservatives began their their rhythmic repetition that the university is full of what it had just gotten rid of. The contrast between reality and what the politicians say, why it's so extreme, it kind of suggests the Ukraine war. But I won't go there because that's going to be a problem. Let me ask you a different, um, although obviously related question. Sure, sure. Some people typically those who don't know much about Marxian economics, imagine that it is some sort of rationale for the government taking everything over, that the government should own and operate and regulate the industries, that the government should plan the distribution of resources and products, not the market. In other words, that Marxian economics is a kind of gloss on the state becoming the replacement for the private. How do you respond to that? And we're running out of time, so I, this is a very difficult question, and I'm giving you no time, no time at all to answer. Listen, I mean, historically, I think we have to own the idea that that's, that's what socialism was defined as, the state taking over. Um, there's nothing in the Marxian tradition, there's certainly nothing in the text of Marx and Engels that said that that's the way it should go. Um, so that there have been some cases, the Soviet Union, China, and elsewhere, where that has been the case? Absolutely. But we live in 2023, and we live in the United States, and there's not a lot of interest in the state taking over everything. So when people are critical of capitalism and want an alternative, they're the ones who are going to invent it. You're not going to invent it. I'm not going to invent it. People wanting concrete changes in their lives. People who are critical of and say, there's something wrong with this narrative, this silly little choice we have between conservatives and liberals. There's got to be an alternative to that. And one of those alternatives springs from the Marxian tradition. Here's a way of saying, you want to redistribute goods and services? Well, Marx has come in and say, that doesn't work so well. We still got a lot of poverty. We still have a lot of inequality. What about the initial distribution? 
What may be wrong with the fact that the employers get to take home all the profits and do with them what they will, and workers are still forced to have the freedom to go to work? Something may be wrong with that, and that's, I mean, just as a start, a kind of basic question that, that Marxists could oppose. David, it's wonderful reconnecting with you. It's wonderful to hear your comments. I hope the rest of my audience is as intrigued as I am. I would urge you all to take a look at David Ruccio's blog. It's an ongoing commentary on what's going on. First rate in the insights you will not find elsewhere. And to all of you, I will conclude today, as I always do, that I look forward to speaking with you again next week. forward to talking with you this afternoon but for the last word I have this talking stick with that emerald serpent feathered one on there with all the fairies feathers rainbow crystals Manahuni all the other little and big beings that we know uh, as Spielberg said ET 101 <laughs> That's the talking stick to you. Right. Getting crowded in here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So thank you for that talking stick. And yeah, I I like Richard Wolf, and I really enjoyed <laughs> Stephen Colbert and Stephen King, uh, Spielberg and John Williams. And yeah, that was fun. That was fun. Yeah. There's a and the rest of it is good, too. Yeah. It was a treat. I'll, I'll probably have to go back and listen to that, because I want to see what John Williams look, looks like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, he's such a hero of mine. It's like the music that he's made it just blows me away, you know. Absolutely. So good. Wow, yes. Wow. Yeah. Spielberg, too. Just yeah, I got to go back and look at it. So thank you, and yeah, we're look we're we're in a good place. Let's do some more of this this afternoon. Plug into yeah. it. Yay! <laughs> yeah. So I pass the talking stick to you, Rama. Here it comes. Okay. Oh, and I get to be a wizard this year on my birthday. So oh, I a wizard. Yeah. So I I think the flash is going to happen on my birthday. Ah, I second that motion. All right. Right <laughs> down to my calendar. <laughs> okay, here's the six, Mama. It's loaded. Okay. What you got for us? This is Alan Watts. Wake up and discover your God. All right. This is therefore to say that transformation of human consciousness through meditation is frustrated so long as we think of it in terms of something that I myself can bring about by some kind of wangle, by some sort of gimmick. Because, you see, that leads to endless games of spiritual one-upmanship and of guru competitions 
of my guru is more effective than your guru. My yoga is faster than your yoga. I'm more aware of myself than you are. I'm humbler than you are. I'm sorrier for my sins than you are. I love you more than you love me. This interminable goings on about which people fight and wonder whether they are a little bit more evolved than somebody else and so on. All that can just fall away. And then we get this strange feeling that we have never had, you see, in our lives, except occasionally by accident. Some people get a glimpse that we are no longer this poor little stranger and afraid in the world it never made. But that you are this universe and you are creating it at every moment. Because you see, it starts now. It didn't begin in the past. There was no past. See, if the universe began in the past, when that happened, it was now. See, but it's still now. And the universe is still beginning now and it's trailing off like the wake of a ship from now. And that wake of the ship fades out, so does the past. You can look back there to explain things, but the explanation disappears. You'll never find it there. Things are not explained by the past. They're explained by what happens now. That creates the past. And it begins here. That's the birth of responsibility. Because otherwise, you can always look over your shoulder and say, well, I'm the way I am because my mother dropped me. <laughs> she dropped me because she was neurotic because her mother dropped her. Now, away we go back to Adam and Eve or to a disappearing monkey or something. We never get at it. But in this way, you're, you're faced with it, you're doing all this. That's an extraordinary shock. So, cheer up. <laughs> you can't blame anyone else for the kind of world you're in. And if you know, you see that I, in the sense of the person, the front, the ego, it really doesn't exist, then it won't go to your head too badly if you wake up and discover that you're God. music for us, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Everybody knows this one. Good. Let's do it, Rama.
13 thank yous, honey in the hat, no evil. Live long and prosper. Aloha, everyone. Until this afternoon, we'll see you again. Sweet dreams. Namaste.